VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, April the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, you know the deal. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone or give us a call on In the Queue and on the Air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Did I just hear Brian Medor say we're going to see a little bit of sunshine at some point today? That would be nice. Snow here in town, some warmer weather, say, for instance, 10, uh, 10 degrees on the south coast. And I think we're all ready for a little bit more vitamin D in our lives. All right, quick check-in on the NHL playoffs. Newark and the Avalanche on the brink of elimination at the hands of the Seattle Kraken. <laughs> Pretty amazing stuff. The defending Stanley Cup champions are wobbling mightily. Uh, fun story, though, last night for Seattle. They have this young fellow named Ty Carty. He was called up for his very first NHL game last night, scored. So what an experience. His parents were in the stands, and you, the reaction is really quite sweet. So congratulations to that young fella. And talk about call-ups. Another great story in baseball last night, a fellow named Drew Maggi. He had played over 1,100 games in the minor leagues before he got called up to make his major league debut yesterday for the Pittsburgh Pirates. The reaction of the people in the stands was incredible. His family was there, including his three brothers. So imagine 1,100 games. That's perseverance, because it can't be all that much fun riding the bus for 1,100 games as a minor leaguer but makes his way to the big struck out, and he's only uh, at bat, but pretty great stuff, uh, great story. So with those two new names to the sporting atmosphere, let's talk about some legends. Today's Babe Ruth Day. So April 27th annually is Babe Ruth, and it happened back in 1947 for the first ever National Babe Ruth Day. Uh, New York City hosted the Bambino at Yankee Stadium to uh, an adoring full house. He was surrounded by dignitaries. Of course, this is just right after his cancer diagnosis, so happy Babe Ruth Day to those of you who celebrate and stick with baseball. It was today in 1983 that the legend that is Nolan Ryan broke a 55-year-old Major League Baseball record by striking out his 3,509th batter. The record had formerly been held by by Walter Johnson. Brian went on to strike out 5,714 pl- uh, batters. That's 800 more than the next closest competitor, which, of course, is Randy Johnson. So add some legends. One more legend. 1956 on this date, Rocky Marciano. He retired as the undefeated heavyweight champion. 49 and 0 in his career, 43 knockouts, the great Rocky Marciano. Okay, good stuff. All right, so... The PSAC strike continues, and they've really amped it up. Now, they're calling on the prime minister to get directly involved. And as a matter of fact, the prime minister is on his way to New York City. So there's a lot of frustration now. What was jubilant uh, actions on the picket lines right across the country? Now the frustration is becoming more and more. And they've moved off, as we've been told, to some more strategic picket zones, including... Shutting down access to the Port of St. John's, we're told, which is something else. Blocking access to the Canadian Forces Base in Montreal. They're picketing the Ambrose-Torquay border, crossing the Saskatchewan. Shutting down the Sinclair Centre in Vancouver, so no access to Service Canada, passport offices, or other business. Shutting down the Burlington Canal lift bridge. Uh, preventing the access to Elijah Smith Building in Whitehorse. That's Canada's main office in the Yukon, the Yukon Territory. So... A lot of this will absolutely be about wages. We're not 100% sure. PSAC has reduced their demand from 13.5%, but haven't told us exactly what. And, of course, Treasury Board is offering 9% over three years. So we are at a real stalemate here. Now, with all the money government has been spending on a variety of different things for individuals, businesses, organizations, and others, 
the call is asking this very fundamental question. If they can afford to make all those billions of dollars in spends, and remember, we just had a $40 billion deficit, $10 billion more than we were expecting, but where do you think this should go? Because whether it be immigration services or passports, and most notably for many Canadians, CRA. So everyone at CRA has walked off the job except for 1,400 who have been deemed essential. So I think we're going to be able to speak with an accountant this morning that started a petition asking for CRA's tax filing deadline to be extended to the middle of June. That's the same date where small businesses have their deadline to file. So we know the implications if low-income Canadians don't file on time, it may jeopardize some of the benefits that they get from the federal government. So we'll have that conversation and we welcome your thoughts on the matter as you see fit. Okay. All right, this story is pretty cool. So there was lots of debate for a long time about aquaculture. Now, for communities that host aquaculture sites, it has been a real economic boon. And in some communities, they probably think that it's been a savior. So when Greig was wanting to come to town, and they've invested some $150 million in the province, including a $5 million loan from the government, now they're set to uh, harvest their first batch of farmed salmon from Placentia Bay this fall. So some 5,000 metric tons. A couple of interesting things. They say the fish are performing quite well in Placentia Bay, but they also go on to say that these fish are unable to reproduce. So that tempers some of the concern people will have that if there's an escape, which we've seen many, many times here in the province, if there's an escape, they won't be able to breed with wild stock. So that's one thing. Now, some of the confusion or disappointment or frustration comes with the processing contract. So they were set to process with OCI and their plant down in St. Lawrence, but they've changed their tune, calling it a just simply a business decision. They've struck a deal with Quinlan Brothers to process the salmon in their plant in Beta Verde. And of course, remember, it burnt down some seven years ago. They left vacant some 4,000 square foot of space. So now they're going to invest somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 million to put in the necessary salmon processing equipment. So OCI are frustrated. Of course they are. Uh, the FFAW, who represents the plant workers down in St. Lawrence, are frustrated. And they point to the fact that Quinlan Brothers annually rely fairly heavily on temporary foreign workers. I think some 125 expected to be working in that plant this year. But of course, no one's processing crab because no one's gone for the crab as of yet. Uh, because they're a major crab pro- processing facility there in Beta Verde. So that's an interesting one. I heard Jerry Lynn Mackey speaking with a representative from Oceania Canada, Canada about the status and the state of the Capelin stock and calling for the government to put a moratorium in the short term in taking the capelin, which is something else. And if you want to take that on, we can do exactly that. So anything inside the fishery, whether it be the Greek Placentia Bay operations, their processing decisions, snow crab, or... Capelin or whatever you want to talk about, but on the snow crab, I mean, the Association for Seafood Producers say they're not going to budge. They're not going to renegotiate a price. Consequently, and naturally, emotions are bubbling over. And people continue to send me screenshots, and I had a little look through the uh, uh, Fisherman's Forum on Facebook yesterday, and it really is quite something. So apparently the operators or the managers or monitors of the site, I think Jason Sullivan might be the uh, number one person there. And Jason, you're welcome to call the show this morning. You know, Mr. Sullivan's saying that if people untie their boats and go for the crab, then they can expect, and I'll let him use his own words, they can expect some pretty harsh treatment from fellow harvesters who have decided to remain tied up as the standoff continues. So, you know, it's been deemed in many corners as being threatening. Mr. Sullivan says he's simply pointing out what he thinks will happen if and when a harvester goes for crab. You know, if someone can make it work at, at 220 a pound, then 
like if it was my enterprise and I, th- I thought I could make it work and make some money, nowhere near the money I made last year, I'm probably going for it. But apparently the emotions from those who are staunchly t- in the tied up crowd, they're not pleased and we can take it on if you are so inclined. Okay, developing news. So for decades, municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador have been talking about the need for more cooperation, collaboration, regionalization, or the county system or something. They produced a report from their working groups, which did not include from the onset representatives from the local service districts, presented it to the Department of Municipal Affairs about the form that regionalization might take in some 25 different regional or county zones in the province. The province has now said no. They're not interested at this time. They say they can't make the math work. So this is from uh, Minister Crystalline Howell. She says, no matter how we slice it, we just couldn't make it work for sustainable regional government models. Number one concern would be taxes. She says, without folding the tax revenue by municipalities into a regional structure, we could not make it functional. For communities today, and that's, I think, some of the thought here is, whether it be unincorporated, unincorporated areas or LSDs or municipalities, they say things are working fine today. You wonder how many questions are being asked about tomorrow. If you hear from Rob Greenwood at the Harris Center, he says population numbers and population trends really mean that at some point in the future, there will be an organic need for cooperation and forecasting the potential for municipalities to disband their elected offices, and then what? So look, I get it. The LSDs and concerns about paying more tax for no more services, fundamentally understood. What it looks like down the road, I think is... If you look at the numbers, I think it's quite clear that there is going to be the need for some sort of cooperation amongst unincorporated areas, LSDs, and yes, incorporated municipalities. So the question would be, is this for political expedience versus public policy? Because no doubt it was politically very risky because so many different parts of the province that are parts of the 40 seats in the House of Assembly would have lots of negative pushback. I don't know what the percentage is of people in the province who wanted to see the county system or regionalization, but certainly the people opposed to were really quite vocal about their opposition. And I imagine this is as much weighing the political risk as it is governance. So if you want to talk about it, and we've had many conversations about it, and it's not about me pushing it or pulling it. It's about what do we do when we look down the road? Because we know this to be true. And this is not necessarily a pro-regionalization comment. Is If we look down the road at the trends in population and aging demographics, to not be prepared for it, we'll have two things. It'll be more chaotic and more expensive. So, and those come with certainly real negative impacts for individuals, communities, and the provincial government. So if municipal governments disband, they then become the responsibility of the province. So I'm not really sure about this eventual just plain no, not at this time, they could not make it work. There are some thoughts out there that they just didn't want to make it work. But whatever side you uh, come down on this issue, but I'm sure there's lots of people, especially those who have called this program in opposition to regionalization, are breathing a sigh of relief. So the next questions obviously have to be, today it might be working, tomorrow, will it? I think that's, that's the question, not necessarily fundamentally addressed in this particular announcement, but anyway, let's do it. How are we doing out there, Dave? Okay, uh, let's go to what was a pretty heated exchange in the House of Assembly yesterday about an extraordinarily important matter, and that's the rate of suicides, not only in the province, but specifically in Labrador, and brought forward by Torgad Mountains MHA, Layla Evans. You know, when you look at the suicide rates in Labrador compared to the island, it's really quite 
alarming. Then you add in the Inuit and Innu First Nation communities, and it's up to 20 times higher in those communities. So Leila Evans is talking about attention to the issues, which certainly will have some impact on the suicide rates, whether it be the social determinants of health, housing, food insecurity, cost of living, intergenerational tra trauma. So Miss Evans is rightfully representing her constituents and Labrador as a whole with looking at these numbers and asking what are we doing and what needs to be done? Where are the shortcomings or the gaps? So Miss Evans, you're more than welcome to join the program this morning to elaborate on the issue, but it's really quite troubling like even if you look at housing she says since she got elected in 2019 there's been very little done regarding housing very little done regarding food insecurity so miss evans you're welcome to join and mental health is always on the front burner here as you know also in that world of mental health and addictions so on the 10th of march the province made an announcement about implementing all the recommendations in the uh, towards recovery the mental health and addictions action plan for newfoundland and labrador looking to transform the mental health and addiction system Okay, there was a five-year plan announced in 2017 talking about all types of things. Supports for people with long-term mental illness, e-mental health, virtual care services, improved access to opioid dependence treatment, transitioning the responsibility for health services from the justice system. They point to some highlights for moves they've made and talk about implementing all 54 of the recommendations in that document. But they also said a final analysis of Towards Recovery and a final update about progress and the status of would be coming in the next few weeks. That was March 10th, today's the uh, 27th of April. So the document is important, the work is obviously critically important, but where are we in the implementation? Are they all implemented in full? Is there a final analysis to be offered? And they can absolutely point to some of the highlights. Sure, doorways, counseling, walking clinics expanded to a total of 66 locations, 43,000 visits since 2017. Talking about a total of 15 assertive community treatment teams and flexible assertive community treatment teams across the province, 8,000 mobile crisis response visits have taken place since 2017, uh, bridged the gaps, served so, pardon me, some 350,000 sessions, 6,500 unique monthly users, approximately 6,300 families referred to Strongest Families Institute, and so these are good things, but we all know, and please don't take this as if you have a mental concern that there's not help out there, there is. It might not be as quick as you need and we still are struggling with access to long-term mental care but the document and the numbers like when i started in this job we used to talk about one in five canadians will experience a mental health issue and or crisis now they're using the number of one in four so certainly the pandemic has exacerbated things so an update on this front would be most welcome regardless of your own mental health mental wellness or mental illness it impacts uh, the society as a whole so let's take that on uh, and inside that envelope, I don't know if you read this news story, about mental health and parents, and especially pregnant women. So the lady who was, was spoke, uh, spoke in the news story, I don't know if we label it courageous or brave, but I know one thing for sure, it's helpful. Because when we tell the stories personally, then we bring more and more attention to it. So whether it be perinatal or postnatal care regarding your mental wellness or mental illness, then let's, let's not be afraid to have the conversations. Because we know decades uh, past, when it was taboo and it wasn't part of the public political discourse, then we didn't pay enough attention to it. And we must. So it's one thing to build a new mental health and addictions facility on the floodplain over the health sciences complex, but bricks and mortar are only one component of an adequate mental health treatment environment or landscape. And you please do if you want to take it on. Let's go. Interesting one. Let's switch gears a little bit here. 
So I'm not 100% sure what I make of this at this moment in time, but we've been talking about hydro a lot for every reason under the sun. So yesterday in the state of Maine, there was a court ruling that overturned a referendum that saw some 54%, I think it was, of residents say they were opposed to a new transmission corridor allowing allowing Hydro-Quebec to sell electricity in New England. So they say that that referendum uh, banning this transmission corridor was unconstitutional, so nine jurors have overturned it. What's also interesting here is that the Hydro-Quebec has spent a ton of money on this uh, possibility already, but they probably don't even have the power to deal with the new wave of customers. They say that in 2027, their energy surplus will have come and gone. So Hydro-Quebec is calling it a win, and of course it is. If they were willing to go to court to challenge it, then they challenged it for a reason. But what does it mean for us? Because if their energy surplus runs out in 2027, I mean, we're the next go-to, aren't we? So people talk about excess Muscrat Falls power, but I'm not so sure how much excess power there is for Muscrat Falls. And remember, the regulator in Nova Scotia, the UARB, said that Amera, or Nova Scotia Power, would have first right of refusal for any excess power to be sold at quote-unquote market rates. So is this a win for us? Does it mean anything regarding the negotiations for 2041? And we almost should stop just using 2041 because there's going to have to be some sort of negotiation years in advance of that so that Quebec and this province can plan for the outcomes and where 2041 will bring us. So is that a win for us? I think it probably doesn't hurt us at all, but that's really quite something. And again, talk about switching gears. I've been asked by a variety of parents to bring up the issue inside the K-12 system about, in particular, you know, we could talk about any uh, facet of the curriculum, but sexual education. At what age and what do we teach them? And of course, there's always going to be a debate here. Some parents would maybe just want to have it done in full at home, which begs the question as to how deep and comprehensively and honestly we want to talk about the realities of sex, self-respect, respect for others, and everything else to do with it. So I tried to look around. This bunch of parents have been uh, uh, emailing me about it. So I went to look at the curriculum as much as I could. You can't really see the images or the films or the text which, which is being taught in various grades. You do indeed uh, find what the outcomes, the hopeful outcomes will be. So I get it, again. These are some of the conversations that are difficult to have, especially in the public forum. But it's the reality of life. Sex is all around us. And yes, it's all around our children. Everywhere they look, there's some sexual implication. So we're not afraid to have the chat here on the program about the when, how old, and what we talk about in the world of sex. But it's part of all of our lives, and if you want to talk about it, we will not... Stay away from it. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's have a great show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number two. Murray, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. I guess the Leafs are going to make history tonight on that second. <laughs> well, they're up 3-1. There's everything to play for on home ice tonight, so I imagine there's a lot of nervous Leaf fans uh, anticipating the game. Now. Okay, good enough. Patty, I called the... Uh, give you some more information on the Southwest Coast air. There's more heat air on the Southwest Coast now than ever was air. And it's all caused by the distribution of the Fiona disaster funding. So we're, the heat between who and who? All the people, Patty, they're cutting one another's throats. You got 
people in Porta Bass had beautiful modern homes that lost them and got half the value of what they're worth, and you got people that lived in the 100-year-old places got 10 times what the value is. And here in Burnt Islands, the fellows that destroyed their own homes, got a, one of them got a beautiful big house bought now, and got contractors out from Cornerbrook, remodeling everything for them. He lived in a 100-year-old place out there, falling down. And I'll give you a bit of information on my place here now. I went down the basement, get me tires, summer tires, put on the car. The bottom two, full of water. Now, that's throughout the winter. That's how much water in my basement. Can't get any information from them. I'm told the two bedrooms I had down in my basement, there's no conversation for them. Can't get compensated for bedrooms in your basement. Uh, reason, she said, how many bedrooms are in your house? I said, five, three upstairs, two downstairs. How many people lives here? Three of us. She said, my, I got a son with autism. He lives with us. She said, well, you can't be compensated for any bedrooms down the basement because you can only be compensated for one room per person, per household. Can you understand that? Not particularly. It was always going to be a confusing setup for evaluating who gets what. And I'm not surprised that there's some vitriol flying around. The one uh, issue that you point to, which is absolutely maddening, and everyone should be frustrated with it, if someone purposefully, after the storm had blown through, purposefully beat up their own property to get government assistance, I mean, for starters, it's fraud. And secondly, it's just ridiculous when so many people have suffered real loss. You know, someone died. People's houses washed into the sea. Some were deemed inhabitable because of a vicious storm, and so people took it upon themselves to beat up their own house for government exactly. money. I mean, that's that's exactly what everyone in this community, Burnt Island, knows what this fellow done. That's awful. And the, ju- the juster sat to the table here and told us, if you do get a settlement on your house, if you get a contractor to do it, and the contractor was here a couple of days after, you get the contractor to do it, you'll get 100% of the settlement. But if you do it yourself with your own carpenter, you'll only get 70%. Now, you intelligent man should be able to tell me something what that's all about. Well, I have nothing to do with it, so I can't explain it. This 70%, like... So, what I'm doing now, Patty, anyone comes around here, tours, I had three here a couple of days ago, I'm taking them around my property, I show them the state that I got here, I just take them in the basement and show everything that's... Well, there's nothing left down there, only garbage, again, now. And anyone comes here, wants to, I'll take them, I'll show them my property and state is in, and I'll take them around the course and show the abuse of Fiona money. And my use is here in shambles, and I can't get a cent from them. I don't know what's going on. Every week we message someone down there, whoever's in control, but the wife does it, and he says, we, we're going to do something. There's another house here to give the money to fix it up. Rebuild it, do whatever Reb be done. Yesterday they come took him out of it. So you don't, you don't ever live here. Got them carried up, put them in the hotel after the house is all done now. What? Why would that be? And that's what's going on here on the Southwest Coast, Patty. 
Well, there's lots of troubling stories. You know, this is not to say that anybody did anything wrong necessarily, but when so many individuals and businesses and governments stepped up with so much money being donated, it would be important to know where the money's going and why it's going there. You know, I mean, people's generosity when we have these troubling times is really quite obvious, even though some folks, I bet you, who made donations really couldn't afford it, but we all saw with our own two eyes what was going on in Puerto Basque and other communities on the southwest coast, and it just broke hearts, and so people tried to dig deep and help out. So it would be absolutely helpful to know, with a careful audit, uh, exactly what went down with all the money. That's my exactly right, Patty. And... and uh the people that lie, like they sold everything out of their homes, they got all this money for those old houses. They sold, took everything out, windows, doors, siding, all the furniture, sold everything, and got compensated for the works. And I'm here, can't get compensation for nothing. There's something wrong, Patty. I got me old patio out there, got lashed up with rope, so the wife get out on clothesline. Try to keep it up, and I can't see. Any sense in trying to rebuild it myself? I can't afford to do it to start with, and so I don't know what to do with it. All he keeps telling you every week, wait for call, message him, and says we're going to do something. I'll uh, follow up with government, whether it be the member for the area, Minister Parsons, or others, just try to figure out what kind of grip or grasp they have on what's going on, and some of the more dastardly stories that you've been telling us, Murray. So I'll do that much for you, but and I appreciate your time again this morning. Okay, thank you, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Anytime. All the best. Thank you. You're Bye. welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's keep going. Back on April 23rd, the Sparks Literary Festival took place at the Music School, the Suncor Energy Hall. It was founded back in 2009 by Professor Mary Dalton. She called it a word spree. Join us on line number three is the festival organizer, Nancy Pedry. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Hello, thank you for having me. Happy to have you on. I really do appreciate uh, Mary Dalton calling it a word spree. It sounds pretty apt. (laughs) Yes, it sure does. It's a day full of energy and tons of great uh, readers, the audience generously asking questions, readers talking about their own processes and as well as their... um, you know, their creative aspirations, how they started. It's really quite uh, the event where young writers can get inspired by these more established writers. Um, More established writers meet up, and the community just meets us. It's wonderful. You know, the opportunity for a young aspiring writer to be in the room with some of these really well-established and Canada Read champions, it must have been the highlight of their uh, uh, authorship careers at this point. So when we talk about process and what have you, it seems to me that that would always be very personal. What works for you or what might not work for me and vice versa. So how do we encourage the young writers in the room to pick the brain of the established writers? And we'll get to some of the names and do some name dropping here in a second, but how does that process conversation look and work? Yeah, so we have a moderator for each panel, and the moderator opens up for questions and encourages people to to ask all sorts of questions. And you can rest assured there's at least four times that a process question comes up. And writers are very familiar with other writers. They do a lot of talking amongst each other, and and they do a lot of uh, mentoring for younger writers. So they're very generous, very open with process, but they are also quite um, broad about what that can look like 
like and careful not to say it has to be done this way. Nobody would ever say that to a writer. A lot of different personalities in the room, right? Um, but it's amazing. You see these young writers coming out and and or aspiring writers and listening to who they think are rock stars. It's it's amazing. It's a really, really uh, a once-in-a-lifetime experience for some of them. And so many different genres in the same room, too, which I think is quite enriching for all involved. So who were some of the rock stars this year? Well, of course, our Kate Beaton, um, who wrote Ducks. We had a comics panel this year, and Kate Beaton joined us. She Her Ducks, um, two years on the oil sands, won uh, Canada Reads and many other awards. So you can imagine a lot of young people in the crowd wanting to see the comics panel. On that camel panel was also Georgia Weber. She uh, produced a book called Dumb, Living Without a Voice. Um, our own Paul Tucker, very well-known uh, cartoonist uh, around here, and Kelly Bastow. We also had uh, Bernice Morgan, very familiar name in the uh, arts literary group. Megan Greeley, who was our writer-in-residence. Dave Sullivan, who made us all laugh. Morgan Murray, who tossed his book across the stage and <laughs> made us laugh in his performance reading event. It was wonderful. It's, it sounds terrific. Is Kate Beaton an Atlantic Canadian as well? I think she might be. Yep. I think so, yep. Yeah, <laughs> she Kate comes Br- from Nova Scotia. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and Bernice Morgan, my brother Michael, was actually in the TV adaptation of Random Passage, just as a side note. There you go. So yeah, She's a rock star all around. Oh, no, no question about it. I've read several of her works, of which there are many. So final takeaway from this year's festival, and what do you have up your sleeve for next year before we say goodbye this morning, Nancy? Yeah, so uh, we're, one takeaway is that it's probably always going to be in April. because we got snowed out uh, a few times in the past few years so we're going to try to keep it in April Um, also um, we we have poetry awards at the festival but we thought to make a special poetry day so we're going to do a a nice poetry event in the summer we're trying to to get poetry right up to the to the top of the of the line um, so that people can also experience it in the summer uh, breezes if summer ever comes Uh, last one before I let you go, like in many areas of the arts, we punch above our weight. We really do, given the population uh, in this province, whether it be on TV or film or any form of the arts, but certainly when we talk about authors, and I'm not going to start name dropping because I'll inevitably leave someone out, but it's just incredible the caliber of work being produced here. The amount of diversity and the richness of the quality of the writing in this province is to be admired. Nowhere else in Canada can we see that. Um, Definitely uh, old and young writers, theater um, producers, playwrights, poets. We have comic artists. We have a spectrum of a wealth of talent in this province, and it should be celebrated as often as it can. I'm glad we celebrated it for a while this morning, Nancy. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Nancy Pedro. She's the festival organizer for the Sparks Literary Festival. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. As we follow along with the different issues regarding the PSAC strike, one key focus area and concern for many Canadians would be the tax deadline, which looms as May 1. Uh, Eric Samu is a charter 
public accountant with ZenBooks. He's one of the accountants who's really worried about this tax deadline and has began a petition which is blowing up, asking for CRA's tax filing deadline to be extended. Eric joins us online at number three. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. So for just looking back inside the pandemic, it is curious to me that the minister responsible is unwilling to extend the deadline, given the fact that there was grace periods and extensions throughout the pandemic. And here we are during a strike and not willing to do the same. That's right. It's, it's a little bit. Outrageous. I was so surprised when uh, when I heard there was no extension being provided uh, to Canadians. And I really hope that's going to be a change in the next few days. And I mean, there's somewhere between 35 and 39,000 employees at CRA, but only 1,400 have been deemed essential. So getting through has always and long been difficult. Now people are using the word virtually impossible. What are the distinct risks associated with late filing if you're one of these low-income Canadians who doesn't get in under the, under the gun? Yeah, I mean, you end up with penalties. You know, you end up with a 5% penalty right away uh, uh, when you plus 1% per year, right? And so Canadians are somehow supposed to read the Income Tax Act, which they never will, and they're expected to file accordingly, right? And they're expected to not have any questions this year. And, and if they make a mistake, they get a penalty, a financial one. And people can't afford these penalties. What are some of the complications this tax season? Because there was an awful lot of additional supports put forward. They were done quite quickly with possibly not the required oversight or monitoring. People have a lot of questions about their tax implications, whether it be with CERB or otherwise. So where does it become more complicated this year? Yeah, people need to amend some of their prior year uh, returns if they've repaid some of the government benefits. specific way of doing that, and, and a lot of people to talk to the state, figure all that out, right? Um, and so people just don't know what they're doing there. Um, also, the CRA has made a big push to uh, filing everything online, but people get locked out of their account, and, and then as soon as they're locked out of their account, you need to call in to get yourself unlocked. But people don't have, right now, the wait times are over three hours, right? So people don't have three to four hours of, uh, of wait time just to, to, to get some answers. Many of our listeners yesterday experienced uh, some serious problems with trying to upload their net file. So obviously it might be a volume issue at this moment in time as people are generally late in getting their taxes in as a rule. What are some of the benefits uh, specifically that might be jeopardized if they don't get their taxes filed by the 1st of May? Yeah, so if, if they don't file it on time, there's there's some issues on the climate action incentive uh, or the GST credit or, or, or the Canada child benefit. So there's, there's definitely a few uh, issues if, if not filed on time. Yeah. What date are you uh, suggesting should be the new tax filing deadline? So we we proposed in the in the petition uh, an extension to June fifteenth. Um, this would align the deadline with the self-employed individuals, so with the rest of Canadians. And, um, and so realistically, if, if June fifteenth is possible, what what's also an alternative is if there's an extension for every day that the strike is happening, right? So for more time for people to actually the answers that they need. And right now, the CRA is just not there to pick up the calls. Can people apply for a late filing grace period? Um, so in Canada, that's not quite how it works. And in, in, in the U.S., there's some options like that. But unfortunately, that's just not a thing. Uh, in Canada, like right now, um, there, there was a recent study that showed third of Canadians actually file this time of year, at the end of April. And so the CRA knows that, and that's why they, they get hundreds of thousands of calls per week. Um, and right now, because they have a limited amount 
um, it's debilitating to Canadians who have questions because people can just can't get through. Are net file uploads, or if you did your uh, taxes electronically, are those assessments done in full by computers and not by individuals? Yeah, so if it is done electronically, it does get processed a lot faster. So the problem is about how it gets processed after the fact, if it's electronic. The, the pro- problem is questions before they file, right? Like, And so once it is filed electronically, it is a quick processing. But if you do file paper-based, that will be a human who will take a look at it. And that becomes a problem as that is being filed now. And we expect massive delays on any paper. Uh, returns. Do you think tomorrow is the last day for an actual decision to be made, whether or not there's going to be a tax extension? Because over the weekend, generally pretty mute uh, on government issues. So what do you think is the drop dead? Yeah, I think tomorrow's the, the game day. So if you don't hear anything tomorrow, I, I don't think that, that it will happen. I think a lot of Canadians are hoping that there's going to be an extension. There's at least 28,000 people who have signed the petition at change.org slash tax deadline. And, uh, and I really hope that there's a change. Uh, Eric, appreciate you making time for the program this morning. Fingers crossed that there's some move tomorrow. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate your time. Take good care. It's Eric Samu. He's a chartered public accountant with Zen Books. I mean, there's going to, like, when you have complicated issues and maybe need some redress of years past filings, trying to get through CRA has been a problem for a long time. And then we had some uh, concerns with uh, accurate or inaccurate information being shared with people who managed to get through to CRA. So this season is complicated, for show. Let's go to line one. Conway, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Uh... Well, then I guess by the, the mist, we got our fishery in right now. We got our crab fishery up in Shambles. And now the, I guess they're refusing to buy lobsters on the, from us. Uh, they're saying their lobster prices is too high. So, I mean, uh, as far as I know, is the companies is the ones that sit in the market. They're the ones that's putting the price up, and we're only supposed to get fair market value. And I guess I'm supposed to put my lobster traps in the water Saturday, and it looks like there's no buyers for it. So I think the time that uh, the provincial government gets up after backside and does something. And what does that mean, though? What do people want the government to do here? You know, there was some thought that maybe the government and willingness to talk about shipping crab out, but of course, they're only getting 225 Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, so not a whole lot more money there versus the 220 So what do people think the government should do here? Well, you're saying it's only 225 but now what I heard down to the pipeline is that the companies over there, it's got a, an agreement made uh, that the price of crab uh, goes up, they're going to get an extra 85 cents on the pound. So, I mean, that's going to that's going to put them up the tree 10 a pound. So, I mean, and the BU is saying that the crab is up over $4 a pound. So, I mean, right now we're being held hostage is, is the bottom line, okay? The, we're supposed to keep the plants going. And... We're not allowed to have outside buyers come in. So we're being held hostage, but yet the companies, I mean, they're only businesses too, but they can go outside 
because he owns plants and everything else in the other provinces. They can buy over there. Then they can ship it in to keep the plants going. And, and then last year, or this year, they brought in so much crab last year that their cool storages was full. And they're telling us that it's our problem. It's not my problem. I mean, if they only buy Newfoundland crab, they're, they're, they wouldn't be full crab. And they'd have had it so and we could have went on fishing. But, I mean, right now, like I said, we're being held hostage. But the amount of crab and cold storage has very little to do with the price this year, though, does it? Well, boy, if you got more crab than you can sell because you took it from the other provinces, and now you're going to tell us that you, we, you can't buy our crab, but you're going to go across the, the, the Gulf and buy crab and truck it in, and I'm going to tell you to give them a better deal than they're going to give us because I've seen it already. Because then they looked up and said, well, they got a, an agreement with us to pay this much price. And they got no agreement with the other ones with Magdalen Islands and all that. So they paid them more than what they paid us. I mean, that's, that's, that's history. I mean, that's true. So, but right now, like I said, I got my crab season gone. Right, and now I'm supposed to go set my lobster traps, and now they're saying no, that they're not going to buy lobsters from us. We're being held hostage on an island, and the provincial government is the ones that's handing out the processing licenses and and and, and, and got to do with some of the quota that the companies has got. So right now it's time for the provincial government to get out and take back the processing licenses if the companies is not going to use them. And stop holding us hostage and get somebody in here to go to work. Or else turn around and start an island co-op to make sure that the, our province is moving forward. Because we can't keep going backwards. I mean, I owe the bank a lot of money. And if I can't go to work, then the bank is going to come and take what I got. And that seems to, to me is just what the liberal government wants. Because the liberals been trying to close down all the small businesses before the pandemic come around, what? and now here we are. Where's the you know, upside for closing down a business? Where's the upside? Yeah, I guess because they're getting kickbacks or something from the large companies. I mean, that's the ones that's funding their their to go around uh, to all the houses and 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 do all their their leg work. Someone's funding uh, You mean campaign donations? Yes, someone's funding them. Yeah, there are, that's public record who funds campaigns. Um, so are you, su- is, are you suggesting that if there was a different business running a plant that things would change versus the market is what the market is? Well, the market is what the market is. Why won't they give us what fair market value so we can go to work? I mean, we got a lobster uh, thing on there in our battery report there. I mean, that's, that's supposed to be fair market value for our lobsters. And right now they're refusing to buy again. So where, where, do, it, like, where do we come in, the fishermen, the ones that's bringing in the product? First gas has gone up, first fuel has gone up, first groceries has gone up. Everything has gone up. And now they're, they're coming out with another carbon tax on top of all of this. So, like then everything else is going to go up again. I mean, 
our small community's got to survive. And 90% of the small communities in Newfoundland is running on the fish trail. And the government seems like they got their hands washed of it, like, like it's a federal problem. But it's not a federal problem. It's a provincial problem. And the government is supposed to be there to make sure that all this is running fair. That's the government's job. We don't want the government involved in setting a price, though, do we? Why not? If I can't go to work and they're going to close down everybody, I'm going to lose my boat and everything else because the bank wants their installment. It's time for the government to do something. They can't hold us hostage here on this island because you got two major companies, and one, and one is uh, belongs to Greenland, over here dictating us what we're going to do. I mean, it's time for the provincial government to get up and either threaten to take back the processing licenses if they don't start this fishery up and get it going on a fair market value or just say, hell with it, we take the licenses, open up the doors, let buyers come in, and this should have been done years ago, start it up, a provincial co-op to make sure that our fishery moves ahead. Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, rege- revoking processing licenses based on a standoff on price might have some legal implications, but uh, I appreciate well, the time. Well, well, what about our legal implications? But no one's telling you. Yeah, but no one's telling you you can't fish, right? You're saying that they can't process, but no one said well, you can't fish. they're saying that they won't buy. Well, on lobster. They won't buy. Where's that going to sell me fish? I can't ship it off. If they're refusing to buy my fish, and I'm not allowed to bring it off the island, or I'm not allowed to bring a buyer in, I'm held hostage. Yeah, I guess the only option would be like what Terry Ryan did with the shrimp is steam across and sell it, which is not ideal, to say the very least. How are you going to steam across and sell it in an outboard boat? Well, you don't operate in that kind of boat, do you, Conway? You're well, I operate an outboard boat when I'm lobster fishing. Okay. You can't operate a 58-foot boat in the beach. I appreciate the time, Conway. What the government is going to or not going to do here, they've got very little time to save uh, this this particular crab season. Uh, thanks for this, Conway. Good luck. Well, not only the crab, it's okay. everything. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Leonard, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. You, Patty? Yeah. This is Leonard Windsor. Okay. I know you from talking about our buddy up in Alberta for the four cops died, but I'm, uh, I also know you now from, you, you've been to the Boomtown, have you? Which one? <laughs> well, it's only one I know of, but anyway, Patty, I'm... What's the Boomtown before we go any further? I'm nervous already, right? Okay. Uh, I got a bit of a problem talking to you or quick and back, but I want to talk about the taping, okay, Patty? Okay. Hello? Go ahead, Leonard. I uh, want to talk about the Capelin. Uh, Capelin runs a fishery here in Newfoundland. Whether everybody knows, and I just laugh at them, you decide whether I'm right or I'm wrong. The Capelin fishery is like this. They come into the beach. They come out. We catch the, whatever comes out in our traps uh, around 100 feet offshore, 150, 200 feet, we catch. The rest goes out into the ocean uh, 
footer, 70 footer, 80 footer, catch the cake, then. Okay. Maybe, maybe, are you listening to me, Penny? Yeah, but what, what's the point you're trying to make? So, Capelin rolling on the beach. The point is about the product, the, 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 the fish, what's the what's loss and what's gain, okay? Uh, we we got a, we got the Capelin coming up to the Sane or Sane or they catch uh, about a half a million pound of Capelin. They dry them up in their Sanes. They uh, got to get them up to about... Uh, 15 feet above the water, there's a sample, and the sample is 40% caper, no good. There's no money into it, so they drop them down in the water, they dies. We got our, our traps in the... Uh, traps is the only thing, because the reason why I'm saying it bad is, we got ours into the shore, about 35 or 40 feet of water. We got to dip this that lot. We haul them up. What percentage are? If they're not any better than 50%, we don't bring them in. We only got a boat that can carry 20, 30, 35,000. Have you got me now, Penny? I suppose, but where, what's the point you're trying to make, Leonard? My point I'm making is about caping. Is, uh, you always told me the same thing when I was talking to you three or four times now. They are, they're, they are, caping is, uh, it, it's a food off. Off the fish, the codfish, off the yes. every kind of fish in the water, Capelin starts from them. Yeah. The same as that. Yeah, Capelin is a, what they call a forage fish. In cre- uh, in, uh, it's a what? Certainly it, it's a forage fish. It's the one of the key in the food chain for species recovery. The, yeah, people say that. That's what I'm saying. Uh, okay. I, I want you to help me out, Paddy. I'm running a good speaker on Okay, so just hold on a second then. So, Pardon? just hold on. Uh, so if Capelin is as important as it is, say, for instance, northern cod to rebound, and yet last year we maintained this, the exact same quota, just about 14,500 tons of Capelin taken out of the water. The, some organizations think it's been overfished for the last three decades and consequently finds itself in a critical zone. Some people call for a pause, short-term pause, on taking Capelin because, I mean, I know there's a landed value. I think between this province and Nova Scotia, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 million last year in value. So that's, I mean, it's not small potatoes, but I guess long-term viability of other species and its relationship with Capelin is undeniable. I'll give you the last final word quickly before we say goodbye, Larry. I like, I like, I like your figures on, on the Capelin because the Capelin is the main, is the main fishery off the other codfish and that. And I want to tell you something new too, Patty. Quickly. I fill it now one pound on in all the stores in St. John's. And don't name me on this one. I want another small one after that. It's fifteen dollars for one pound of codfish brought in by. Uh, What's your name? Uh, uh, fisheries, uh, ocean products, and all them people are bringing in the fish and they're making a fortune on the bit of cod they take offshore. Yeah, when you get 80 cents pound at the wharf and you go to the grocery store and pay, uh, wh- whether it be 10 I bucks, 12 bucks. Here yesterday, yes. uh, okay. 1.1 1. 1 kilo, uh, kilos. Yeah, it's expensive. $20. It's crazy expensive. Meal for me, not okay. my wife. I live by myself, Eddie. Well, you take good care of yourself, Leonard. i got to get one more on before the news. Right, and I appreciate the time. All right, there we go. Let's go to line number four. Bill Tizard, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing fine. How about you, Bill? Oh, Patty, I'm doing excellent. I just want to phone and call and thank you 
the OCM, and of course David Williams, your producer, uh, for uh, helping us promote our flipper dinner at Royal Canadian Branch One on Blackmarsh Road. We had it Monday night. It was an overwhelming success. Glad to hear it, Phil. And I don't know how to say thank you enough, Patty. As I said before, when I call your line, uh, our phone lines light up like a Christmas tree. Well, we're happy to help along because, I mean, the money you raise there goes a long way to providing the services oh, to the Patty members. So, yeah. way, and, of course, I have to uh, thank our ladies, Auxiliary, who had a real herd that day. They had a lot of vegetables and everything to cook. And Danny Holland from the Knights of Columbus, thank you very much for cooking our flippers for us. And Patty, again, I don't know how to thank you because it's just overwhelming. Well, I appreciate the uh, effort that you and your team put in, so no need to thank me because we need to thank you, Bill, because you're doing a lot of important work for the Legion. Patty, without you, we wouldn't get our tickets out like we do. And October the 23rd, uh, we're going to have another flipper dinner. And right now, uh, we're not selling tickets right now. All we're doing now is uh, going to compile a list and we'll get back to the people around the 1st of October because it's just too early to sell tickets yet. But we want to give everybody a chance. Petty, we put out over 300 dinners on Monday. Fantastic. Great news, Bill. So make sure when the next one comes around, give us a call again. Yes, and again, uh, thank you to Taylor's, Doug Taylor. Taylor's, uh, they provided all the flippers first, and I do thank them very much, too. Here, here. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad to hear it was a big success. Thank you, Patty. I really appreciate it. God bless. Talk again soon, Bill. Bye. Right, there we go. Bill Tizzard, uh, successful flipper dinner. Love it. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number five. Good morning, Jason Sullivan. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind, you. No, not bad, but not bad. How so, can I help you today? Well, well, I don't know if you can help me or not, but here we go. So are you the moderator of the, uh, the Fisherman's Forum on Facebook? Yeah, well, I, it's my Facebook group, basically, and uh, so, yeah, I just started it, geez, I don't know, six or seven years ago now, and it's kind of ballooned into this information tool, I guess, for, for, the, for the fishery. The I'm, And I'm on it, and I get the notifications every time there's a posting on, and I know you were live yesterday. The concerns being brought forward, like, for instance, Terry Ryan called yesterday, and, you know, the issue is for some harvesters who think they can make a buck at it based on the scale of their operation at 220 pounds for snow crab, they want to go at it, but some of the way the reactions coming on your form are really quite something, and pretty harsh in some form. People have sent me some screen grabs, so what's your role as a moderator? to temper those issues and what people are considering threats yeah well i mean you know today's society is, is you know how it goes people's feelings gets up, uh, upset pretty easy but uh, anything that i think that's you know there's no violence being tolerated or violent threats um but yeah i seen the other night in ter- like so i booted terry off yesterday you know full disclosure because you know anytime like like terry inciting uh, things like he made a post yesterday said that I made threats and, and to people but that wasn't true um, the other night uh, the old union boat uh, I forget what she's called now she left to go out crab fishing while the entire industry was, was tied out so the the data of the guy that owns us got on and explained that they can go fishing and they can take a loss and it doesn't matter because they can take it off, make it off on other revenue streams but that's not good enough for everyone else in, in rural Newfoundland so 
I said, fine enough. I said, I, I, I guess we'll see you on the wharf when you get back in. Because the way this works, Paddy, and is, you know, this is an FFAW organised tie-up. The entire industry is tied down to try to straighten this market out. And having someone go above and beyond that and to try to screw this up on everyone isn't going to be good enough. So in the past, any time that someone's broke rank or anything like that, when they got back in, all the people that were trying to fix this usually meet them on the wharf. There's no violence or anything. You just don't let them unload. You know, you don't get to go fishing if everyone else is in tied up. And that's, you know, again, this isn't a Jason Sullivan tie-up. This is this is an FFAW tie-up. They've decided all the crab chairs and the insure council that we're going to try to fix this market, and it's a good call. But uh, sometimes when people like Terry and that don't get their own way and they get upset about it and they want to go fishing because they don't care if they fish for nothing, um, that's fine, but, you know, you're not going to come on my group and make law. It's particularly about me because I, I think I understand someone screen grabbed that, that thing that said that I was threatening people and, and sent it to your Twitter account or something. So that that's completely false. So there, therefore, I don't have any time for that. And that's just something I do, uh, you know, out of the goodness of my heart, you know, to, to keep people informed. And I don't have time being on a switch and now with nearly 13,000 people on that group to go defend myself all day long to everyone because, as you know, everyone isn't going to always agree. And sometimes when people don't agree, they they start spreading this lies or whatever and, and it's just to try to create unrest and stuff like that. So it's just a way for me to control it. Like, But, I mean, if everyone's on there and being respectful and, you know, obviously people are stressed out. People, you know, got banks beating on their door and, and everything else and the market is gone and... So yes, there's going to be, uh, you know, people, you know, people's emotions are high, uh, but you know, I do my best and I, and I try to keep it clean and 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 hopefully everyone. I mean, the rate that people are joining the group, everyone seems to be enjoying us. And like you said, it's, at the end of the day, it's just a tool. The FFAW is making the final call on, on, on if there's a tie-up or not. And right now, there is a tie-up, and, and people's got to respect that. And if they don't want to, it's not going to go and cry and wolf and say, "No, oh, Jason Sullivan hurt my feelings. He kicked me off the group." And, but at the end of the day, that's just my Facebook group. I mean, it's not tied to anything. It's not democratic. It's not nothing. It's something I started just just for, so people could be informed and and and. You know, that was one of the things we were really lacking in the industry was, was information. So I think people are starting to get a lot more of it through that group. So, but you're painting a picture that if someone dares break ranks, and I mean, like if it was my enterprise and I thought I could make a buck at it, I think I'd want to go at it. So if you're saying that there's someone's going to come back to the wharf, and I don't know about whether or not someone's going to physically encounter someone who's trying to offload their crab, but there was assertions that there would be some potential violence and or damage inflicted on their vessel or whatever the case may be. Should your role be to temper that and to encourage that to not be the case? Because, you know, breaking ranks and solidarity is good in concept, but if I need this bit of money coming in, whether it's a lot less than last year or not, why shouldn't they just be able to go? Uh, well, like I said, they can. You just can't come back. They had to go to Nova Scotia somewhere with us. But you know, this is just how because this, this is how it works. This is, if everyone is tied on, if if everyone is tied on trying to fix this, and someone says no, shag you, I'm going to screw it off on everyone. That's what happens. It's happened in the past, and I'm sure. Like it won't be Jason Sullivan organising people to go to the wharf, but it will be the FFAW guaranteed. They've done it in the past. You know that thing that went on in the plant over there around Clarenville and that. You know, there's there's lots of examples of how this went in the past and that's just what's going to happen again until the FFAW says 
okay guys this is it we're going to go fishing but until then that, that's just how it works I, I, and it's not me just organising it that's just normal practice of what happened in the past I mean we're trying to fix this together if we're in this together everyone's got to be together if not what's the sense of having a union or anything else like that if you know everyone's just going to you know say screw you and I, I can get ahead and the other 90% of the people are going to go bankrupt but I don't, that don't matter I can make a dollar at it so that, but that's the thing about the, the fishery it's a public resource so there's a social conscience and a social, social responsibility with that you just can't destroy rural Newfoundland because I can I can make a go of it I can make a go of it at $1.50 petty I'm not rushing out to harbour because I'm not that greedy I don't care I'll deal with the bank when they come knocking for me but I'm not going out there ruining someone else's thousands of other people's lives because I'm greedy and I need to go fishing it's not the case I don't care I'll deal with it myself just like everyone else is going to deal with it but right now we're trying to focus on the greater good and making sure that rural Newfoundland can survive this if you go out fishing now at 220 when the market's already dropped over a dollar since when they set the price at 220 you know next week we're going to be fishing for a dollar 15 dump 30 million pounds of crab on top of that you're down to a dollar probably the week after and these big heroes that wants to go out through the harbor now and save the day because i can make a go of it then they'll be crying foul because you're fishing for 90 cents for a dollar and trying to blame someone else because they were too greedy to stay in and wait this out and try to get this fixed and that's what's going to happen if 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 someone wants to go fishing now and the masses goes out through the harbor how do we think that the mass tie-up is going to fix the market because of the association of seafood producers they're not going to budge an inch on this price at 220 how do we think the tie-up is going to uh, affect any sort of meaningful change if the market is what the market is so is it simply about the percentage of the fair market value that harvesters got last year compared to this year because if the market's not going to change based on a tie-up what are we hoping actually happens here well, that percentage thing is pure nonsense, right? Because as the market price increases, I mean, your percentage of a $10 market crab to a, compared to a $5 market crab is going to be much higher because everyone's costs are set, like a processor's costs are set. So anything above that is profit. And same with a, with a harvester. So your percentages can, can vary as it gets higher. So this thing about 30 and 40% is pure nonsense when you're down this low, right? Like, But the, the thing about the withholding some some uh, crab from the market is that we went so when the price was set the price of crab and earner berry was 575 a pound we didn't go fishing because we like you know we're still kind of falling 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 the gulf went fishing they've dumped about 20 million pounds on the market now the price has dropped now from 575 down to 480 since this opened yeah if newfoundland had to be fishing and dump another 30 40 million pounds on that by now we'd be in the toilet we'd probably, we wouldn't be in the toilet we'd be down in the septic tank somewhere so like this this is not this is just a normal market stuff i mean you ask any economic economists about this and this is what will happen we're trying to withhold a bit so the market rebounds stabilizes a bit and the plants get some orders the big thing the, plant, the plants wants us to go fishing for nothing sure they do because the file when this do rebound is not going to stay down forever they're going to maximize their profits probably get double or triple their margins and good for them but in the meantime the fishermen will be after fishing it for nothing at, at less than break-even prices so yes they want us to go fishing obviously this is their business this is how they make money they're paying that loader guy to say this stuff because that's their job that's his job to make them a pile of money so you know by by withholding some volume from the market or our volume we're hoping that the prices start to rebound so what you seen last week the price went down far as 480 so Tuesday passed, the Erna Barry came out again and was still at 480. So today, this evening, the Erna Barry will be down again. Hopefully, it'll start to rise a little bit and then settle out to wherever it's going to be. When that settles out, if it's 550, 6 bucks, 
five bucks, who knows? But when it settles out and planes off, then people have to get together with the plants and decide what the real price is going to be and if they want to fish for it. Because right now, the real price isn't 220 a pound. That was set when it was, the market was 575. The market's down to 480 now. Yeah, they'll get on with their sly grins and say, yeah, you can go fishing for 220 But we all know next week they're going to go back to the panel and chop the legs right out from underneath us and give us a dollar fifty or dollar eighty, whatever it's going to be. And that's not good enough. I mean, we're not that stupid. There's no, like, we know the market's dropped since they set the price at that point, and they're going to come back looking for, for blood. And that's what they want to do, get us on the water. Your your gear is in the water then for 220 What are you supposed to do? All your gear is in the water. you got to go fishing when the price drops to fifty. So this is a big game. And like I said, people are getting anxious to go and everything else, but people that, you know, don't have a, okay. a huge social, social conscience, right? So at five, 575 and 480, those are American dollar references to the market at this moment in time. So historically, hasn't it been the case that it's generally the market is stronger early in the season and, and tails off somewhat? Because last year at the beginning of the season, eight bucks, and eventually went down as low as 615. So is there any thought that this market will do anything but continue to lower well i mean anything is possible but no, yes and you're right last year was different but the last few years you can't really compare because it's kind of an anomaly what happened due to covid and all this stuff but normally historically the, the market starts high drops and then rebounds a bit and flattens off to wherever it's going to settle in it so but the, like the story that the plants aren't telling you or, or loader when you see these these news conferences he says they've got no orders like normally they go to Boston at the end of March to seafood show and they lock in so many loads which means it's like you know a container load at, at a certain price so that's how they know how they, how much they can pay and that's why there's bonuses and everything else that goes around after the fact but right now what they're not telling you is none of them got any orders so they're still going, like, hoping to sell load by load. Like, I, I know one guy told me yesterday, they used to, you know, before the year, that they used to sell, like, however many loads. When their broker called him this, this uh, spring, he asked for so many cases. That's boxes of crab. I mean, that's useless. So, like, when the market settles out and they start getting orders, they know what they can pay. So it's just we're just looking for some stability. Like like we we don't want to fish at two twenty and go down to dollar fifty next week. That's no one no one really wants to fish at two twenty anyway. But at the end of the day, if that's all that's there, well, that's it. everyone will have to decide if that's what they want to fish at. But right now, I was so volatile. I don't know why anyone would want to rush out the harbour and like you know this is big this is a big deal for a lot of people with low volumes and, and a lot of debt and stuff like that so it's it's too important just to, to run out and, and try to screw it up for the next five ten years if i thought the market was going to collapse even further with the glut of inventory then my business sense would say i'd like to land all my crab at 220 before i start getting a buck 15 you, you can't it's, it's impossible like you, you're only going to get one trip at, at, at 220 and then it'll be down see the market's already down and, and Loader told everyone last week as soon as Newfoundland opens it's going to drop again but we're hoping it's going to rebound a bit start to level off and set the market price and then they'll start getting orders at some point people are going to start eating crab again I mean unless I don't know everyone lost their taste buds for, for, for crab legs but oh I think people still it, like the crab is that uh, times are tight I think that's the issue here but when we factor in everything in our cost of living envelope or inflation and especially food inflation I'd love to eat as much crab as I used to in years past uh, but I don't think I can and I think that's the market yeah. influence as opposed to people lost their taste for a bit of snow crab, of which the, uh, the quality of the market, uh, pardon me, the crab in the, our waters is second to none. Uh, Jason, very quickly, last word before I got to go. 
Yeah, and just to follow up on that, I agree. Everyone, when they go to the grocery store now, you might you might pick up uh, the blade steak now instead of the prime rib. But at the at the end of the day, what you're not seeing is last year crab in supermarkets was you know twenty bucks a pound, blah blah blah. Now a lot of supermarkets in the US are down to six ninety nine, nine ninety nine. So it's not like meat; it has dropped in the supermarkets. People has got to start eating. I, I I believe there's more to the story than what we've been told. And in the meantime, Patty, thanks for having me on, and uh, have a great day. You too, Jason. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the results of the Galtus relocation vote. Don't go away. Welcome back. Well, we found out last week that the residents of Galtus did not reach the required 75% majority to relocate. Some 64% of residents did vote in favor of relocating, and that did not meet the threshold. So that's the third time it sounds like that conversation may be done. Until we keep it going right now with our guest on line number six, that's Martine Blue. Good morning, Martine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yes, I just wanted to get in touch, touch base on the results of the vote and, uh, you know, my thoughts on how the government could conduct this vote better in the future if they hold it again in other towns. Well, that's it. I don't know if it's ever going to come to pass in the near future again in Galtas, but we've got to make sure the process works because inevitably, and people don't like to hear this, but arguably it's inevitable that we will indeed have other communities entertain this conversation. And the process as it works now simply doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, there, there were issues with it. I mean, I, I really hope that the government looks back on on how the Galtas vote unfolded and and how they can improve their their methods with it. And also the community relocation policy that guides the vote really needs a serious look. They I spoke to a rep and she admitted to me that every time there's a vote they tweak the they tweak the policy. So it definitely needs a retweak if it's you know going if you know for the next community that goes through this. Where are the areas that you'd like to focus in on? Uh, well, first of all, the callousness in which it was conducted, uh, the minister did not come down. No, no rep from the government came to speak to people directly regarding the vote. Um, I think that, uh, you know, even when we called for them to come, we asked them specifically to come to the town. They refused to come and cited that they didn't want to see, be seen as swaying the vote. Um, but they have to come in and give a, you know, a face to to you know this this whole process you know the vote created a ton of anxiety within the community and uh we really you know we really need somebody to come and speak and and tell us all the issues you know tell, answer all the questions that people have you know that wasn't done and uh and the other you know another thing is to let everyone know everyone who's a stakeholder in the community all the businesses you know jane pitfield wasn't aware um, people like us, uh, which the community relocation policy terms as uh, non-residential resident property owners, which is a mouthful, um, you know, none of us knew what was going on. And a lot of people found out in the media, which is a horrible way to find out what's happening to our own town. So, you know, that's another aspect. And then the community relocation policy which allows people to vote on the fate of the town who have already left and sold their houses. That's you know one of the biggest issues that has to be amended. 
The eligibility issue, of course, is going to be the key. Now, uh, public consultations closer to the vote, information being shared wide and far is, of course, absolutely important. But, like, for instance, I, I don't know if I was surprised because I didn't know what the outcome would be. But when the relocate vote seemed to be off to a head start, given the fact that the eligibility went back to last April. So if you were a permanent full-time resident last April but have left since, you still got a full vote carrying the same weight of people who still live on Galtus. So you got to figure, it stands to reason, that those people were going to vote yes to relocate. Why not? They're already gone. No one's going to look up turn their back on $250,000 from the government. Exactly. So getting that a little bit more fair is got to be the first adjustment, in my personal opinion. Like, even if it was they were still eligible for count, uh, compensation because of the eligibility rule, but didn't get a vote because their vote was locked in. So there's, I think, a, 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 something could be done there. Definitely. I know for Little Bay Island, it was six months, the eligibility, that, that year was six months, and then they expanded it to a year. But that, that needs to be, you know, definitely looked at. No doubt about it. So uh, what's the, you know, for, fe- for folks who are either they use it as a uh, summer home on Galtus or another some smaller communities, I wonder what this kind of vote means for conversations in other communities as they look at what's going on, whether it be the number of the children in school, the number of young families, the number of retirees, access to, you know, Galtus is half unique, but of course, because it relies on a ferry service. So I wonder how other communities are going to absorb this outcome as they entertain the conversation in some years to come where they live. Well, that's the thing. I mean, where does it end, right? I mean, this this re- resettlement, relocation that they call it now, like, it, you know, it's just going to keep going and it sort of holds a black cloud over isolated communities. I really think that these places are special and unique and could benefit. I think the whole province could benefit from investment into these communities. There's so few of them left now. Um, the minister, she was uh, on one of the shows, and, and the host asked her if there was there were any plans to invest in communities like, well, invest in Galta specifically. And uh, she said, no, we're just focused on the relocation vote. So, you know, their whole focus is on shutting down places like this. But the, the ferry operator was interviewed and, and said that we have a lot of uh, people coming on the ferry in the summer especially. So, you know, I, I think there's a high interest in places like this, and I think that, that just shutting them down is very short-sighted. Yeah, I mean, the future is going to be obviously of concern for many smaller communities because at some point you need a... You know, you need an economic base. At some point, you have to have uh, access to services. And, of course, government will eventually become resistant to providing services to very, very few for an extraordinary cost. So the future is not, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it's bleak, but it's certainly questionable for some communities. And they know it. But it's the, the emotional attachment and the sentiment and where your family's from and generations of setting down roots that it becomes extremely difficult. And I completely understand why folks don't want to even entertain because there's a uh, there's some sort of heartbreak that could be associated with being told that's it we're cutting off your power we're cutting off your ferry we're cutting off your access to public services and that's the end of the road for you your family and your generations in one community or another of course it's as emotional as anything we can talk about i i really actually think that if there were more homes available there would be more people coming to galtus in, in particular 
um, there's we had a playwright come to, uh, to she's writing a play now on the town and the resettlement uh, event that we had and she wants to now buy a house there she wants to move there so I, I think that with remote work um, I do think more people will and do want to live in communities like this that are safe that are stunning that have so much to offer but I, I don't think that the future is necessarily bleak yeah, I, I don't know how quickly people would be moving to one smaller community or another, but you make an excellent point regarding remote work. PEI and Nova Scotia did a bang-up job during the early stages of the pandemic to bring people in. I mean, Atlantic Canada has done very well, not only in immigration numbers, but people moving across the country into Atlantic Canada. And a lot of us, because we learned a lot about how, you, how and where you can work. And consequently, they had campaigns focused on that and that alone, and they saw a big surge of Canadians, especially from Ontario, moving to Nova Scotia and the PEI. We didn't quite latch on to that. We focused more on international immigration, but you're not wrong. If, you know, being able to live in a place like Galtus and work with a company in Silicon Valley, best of both worlds. Martine, you still there? I think we've lost Martine, have we, Dave? Yeah, unfortunately dropped out. If, she, if we weren't finished the conversation, Martine, you can give us a call back. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Topics strictly up to you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Juan, you're on the air. Oh, uh, yes. Hi there, Patty. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, a lot of interesting uh, conversations this morning, but I wanted to um, call in and I wanted to give a, a shout out, or at least that's you know that's the term that I'm <laughs> that I'm used to, or um, you know compliment both to um, I guess the general public and the town of Harbor Grace. Uh, this concerns uh, the Clary Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which you may be familiar with. It's a wonderful uh, facility. Of course, you know, they have the ice skating rink. Uh, you know, they have a couple meeting rooms. There's fitness classes um, that take, I mean, a place there. My wife enjoys going to the Zumba. But uh, what I'm specifically calling about is they have a, a walking track up there. And um, it's used by many, many people, um, many seniors. And uh, I've realized that many people come from uh, way outside of Harbor Grace, um, you know, to use the track. It's just a, a wonderful facility. And so um, last week, uh, a sign went up on the door to let everybody know that the Clary Center would be closing effective Monday of this week and that they would be opening back up uh, the end of July. And so um, a lot of people were, were of course, I mean, very much disappointed. Um, as I said, many seniors go up there, and, and um, it's just a, a very safe, you know, comfortable place to walk and everything. And so... Um, uh, why, are they, why are they closing the I center? Um, well, uh, we well, what happened? Um, my wife and I asked around, and uh, we mistakenly felt, or um, 
got the impression that um, the uh, regular town council meeting was Thursday of last week. So um, it was it was not Thursday of last week. What what, what they actually had was um, it's called a roundtable up here, I guess, or where the you know the town council members. I, I guess they meet. Um, I mean, uh, prior to the I mean, a public meeting or whatever, but we were there in the parking lot and we asked a couple people, and one of the people we asked turned out to be the mayor. <laughs> so he was he was so so kind um, and everything invited us in. We sat in his office and he explained to us, you know, that it was um, yeah, I mean, uh, primarily financial. I mean, uh, to answer your your question, um, because we have since learned that um, it appears that the Clary Center is 100% the responsibility of the town of Harbor Grace, even though there's people apparently from everywhere that use it. I mean, um, I drive from Carboneer. Uh, I talked to um, you know several people after the signs went up. There is this really wonderful, um, I'm an older couple, I mean, like, you know, the early 80s, and apparently they drove from a place called Tilton, and I didn't speak with anybody um, who was actually from Harbor Grace, you know, just trying to get, I mean, feedback and, you know, and people's ideas. And so anyway, um, uh, we went, um, I guess, um, as concerned citizens, you know, to try to, I mean, voice um, our concerns as representatives, you know, for people not able uh, to drive over to Harbor Grace and everything. Um, and we told the mayor that, like, you know, we would, we'd be happy to, I um, mean, you know, pay as we go, I um, mean, you know, pay on a weekly basis, month or whatever. So anyway, the uh, normal or the scheduled. Um, I see town council meeting apparently was uh, Tuesday of this week. And so um, I happened to go up to the, um, I to the Clary Center yesterday because um, they have a branch of Fusion, of Fusion Fitness um, that rents space up there. So I figure, well, heck, you know, I can, um, I mean, I'll get a membership up there. And to my delight, uh, the Clary Center is open and it is going to stay open. So um, I wanted to, um, you know, just, um, you know, highly compliment um, the town of Harbor Grace and their um, um, willingness, you know, to go and to listen to the feedback of the public, because apparently there was uh, quite a few, uh, you know, comments uh, and feedback and everything, okay. and, and they'll be working something out. So um, that's the good news, and you yeah. know it's interesting about who covers costs. Like similar up Labrador comes to mind between Lab City and Wabush, and trying to cover costs at the Mike Adam Recreational Complex up there. So there's conversations that need to be had so that the doors can remain open for all the obvious reasons. I've got to get to another call, Juan, but I appreciate the good news and your time. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye bye. Right. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to four. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. How are you doing this morning, Patty? Couldn't be better. How about you? That's kind. Good. I was just phoned in about buddy yesterday with the yogurt situ- situation there. Okay. Dominic, right? 
Well, he was talking about a variety of foods uh, and rations, but yes, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, some issues surrounding the pricing of yogurt, even if I go to the grocery store. Price of yogurt, and for some people, some of the yogurt that they've enjoyed, they're finding it harder and harder to get. Why? I don't know. Yeah, but he's incarcerated too, right? Yes, okay. What's the point? So to complain about that, where, like, I know half of land kids don't go to school without yogurt. So for him to phone in, like, uh, I don't understand. Well, I think his call was more about how the contract was let and for the same amount of money getting less. So I don't think it was simply about I didn't get enough yogurt. It was about how the contract actually works. And I, I thought it was an actually a pretty fair question. And I've tried to follow up and figure out exactly what the contract looks like today versus the last one. So, yeah, maybe there was a component of complaints about rashes that he gets. But I think the larger point was, you know, how's the money being spent? Are we getting value for money as a public dollar? That's all. That's all I took it anyway. Okay, cool. Yeah. But like you said, he got a, another eight months in that place. So... Uh if I was going to stir up the pot, I would have waited for the last day, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I'll leave that up to him. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, you have a good day, Patty. You too, Paul. All the best. Yeah, All right, bye-bye. Yeah, you know, questions about public contracts, we should always be throwing those around. Um, because it's important, right? It's our money. And talking about how we spend it, where we spend it, and who we spend it with. I mean, because there's nothing quite like being in private business and getting to do business with government, you know, no downside there. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Uh, Vic wants to talk about PSAC or PSAC, and we're actually going to talk a little basketball, too, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go line number five. Well, Cliff Levingston was a first-round pick in 1982 of the Detroit uh, Pistons, ninth overall after playing his college ball at Wichita State. In the NBA, played for the Pistons, the Chicago Bulls, Atlanta Hawks, Denver Nuggets, and after he hung up his high tops, started coaching in 2000. Currently, he's the coach of the Kokomo Bobcats, in town to play against the Newfoundland Rogues, and Cliff Levinson, two-time world champ, joins us on line number five. Good morning, Cliff. You're on the air. A little bit of background. Is he there? You want to put him on hold and see what's going on? Cliff Levinson on line number five. Okay, let's see if we can get him going. Pretty cool. Two-time world champion. Would have played with the likes of Dominique Wilkins, Michael Jordan. Absolutely incredible stuff. And, of course, I watch more basketball back in the 80s and 90s than I do currently. So, Levinson's the guy that I would have watched. Imagine, first-round pick. And, yes, the Newfoundland Rogues were on a nice win streak. They had about, I think it was they won five in a row before they left for a four-game stint in the United States. Back at Mary Brown Center with the Kokomo Bobcats in town. Do we have him now? Okay, let's give it another shot and go to line number five. Good morning, Cliff Levingston. You're on the air. Well, hello. How are y'all doing? I couldn't be better. How about you? Man, I am doing fantastic. You know, I'm doing fantastic. Well, I'm going up to get into this. Here, up here in this cold, cold, cold weather. We, the weather broke for us down south, but uh, up here still, it's still hanging on. Yeah, it sure is still hanging on, and we apologize <laughs> for the weather, but none of us live here in this particular part of the province for the weather. So let's get right into the Kokomo Bobcats against the Newfoundland Rogues. And just, I think yes. you, they're the first coach ever in Kokomo. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you make of the TBL and the caliber of play. Well, you know, um, I, I was only come to. I only started coaching with the um, Kokomo Bobcats two years ago, well, three years ago now, and I was only going to be part of the, the organization if they were community orientated uh, and they were involved with the city and and they ran a professional t- uh, team. And when I mean by professional team, from making sure the players are paid to 
um, the way they carry themselves in the community and how people saw them and, and what they, and the product they put on the floor. And they were very upfront with it, and they let me, you know, do the things I need to do to help them become, uh, make sure they are, you know, help uh, looked at as a professional ball club. And we've been successful for the past two years. We've um, we got team organization of the year our first year. Last year we got community organization of the year, and you know, and we ended up, you know, division leaders our first year, and we made the final four last year. So. We're steady trying to grow to get to that championship. Have you guys had a look at the Newfoundland Rogues this season, Cliff? This, yeah, we we played them. We played them twice so far. Uh, we played them at our place, and we played them uh, last oh, night yeah, uh, here, and yeah. in, in Newfoundland. And you know, they have a very good organization. I mean, I was I was I'm very impressed on how um, uh, Tony Kinney has put everything together uh, from the time they made, I met him in in, um, in Kokomo. And I was even more impressed when I got here to see the infrastructure and how they run things here. They run a top-notch club, and and not only that, they put a great product on the floor. If, if you haven't been to a game, shame on you because it's uh, a very, very good ball club to have. Yeah, I have been to a game, and I know Tony Kenny personally. I've known him for four decades, possibly, and he's determined to get mm-hmm. it right. You know, same with Coach Williams, who's really got the same sort of focus that Tony Kenny does. So we're really quite proud with the professional approach that the team has taken. Uh, you don't mind if I get into a bit of your career, Cliff, because that's my heyday of watching the NBA. Ah, okay. No <laughs> okay. So, I mean, you would have played with the uh, Michael Jordans of the world, Dominic Wilkins, Antoine Carr, uh, Spud Webb, Concac, and the like. So, when you first made your way into the league as a top 10 pick for the Detroit Pistons, you know, that leap between college and the NBA and some of the guys that you got to play with, what's it like to be on the floor with, you know, guys who are eventually going to be deemed legends, the Jordans and the Wilkins of the world? Because sometimes we get caught up watching the best players that we see on our own team versus just playing the game. Well, you know what, though? I'm going to be honest with you. I was just caught up in just playing with players that that, uh, that I respect and I enjoy playing with. I never thought Dominique Wilkins would be a Hall of Famer. I never thought, you okay. know, um, uh, Isaiah Thomas going to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, Dikembe Mutombo. You know, I, I played with seven Hall of Famers. I knew Moses Malone and, and Jordan was going to be Hall of Famers. But the other guys, you know, we were just having fun and enjoying basketball. And we played basketball for the love of the game and we play with our heart. Um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a different game now. You know, it's, the game is a little bit more progressive and, um, you know, with the social medias and stuff like that. But we played because we enjoyed the game and played hard and left it all on the floor. You know, I, I tell guys a lot of times, um, my era of basketball was, you know, probably the purest of basketball there was because it was guys who played not just for their stats, but status um, was amongst each other, not the, the the world. We played for status amongst each other. And and it was it was a lot of fun. Like I said, I I really just wanted to play four years. You know, I was just trying to get, the, you know, one contract, four years. I ended up playing 13 years pro. You know, I wanted to win a championship. I won two championships. I mean, I've been blessed to be in a lot of good situations with a lot of good players and a lot of good teams. 
Yeah, almost 6,000 points, over 4,000 rebounds, almost <laughs> 600 block shots. So you certainly played your role. But the position of power forward, at number 53 yeah. played the game a little different than you'd see someone in the power forward game today. Like So during your era, we're watching Showtime with the Lakers and their, the rivalry with the Celtics. But, of course, the game has gone from maybe having the big postman. Like, I mean, uh, LeBron just overtook Kareem as the all-time leading scorer when everyone had the big guy in the middle, right? There was a lot of post-game basketball. Now yeah. it's all about the three ball. So is that a change for the better, or do you bemoan the way that basketball has shifted to a vastly different game than it was when you played? Well, it's a vastly different game. But you know what, though? I still play and coach old-school basketball. Okay. I'm a firm believer that I'd rather have twos and fews than threes. The three ball, everyone can't shoot like Steph Curry. Everyone, Every team can't shoot the ball like Golden State Warriors. So I, I play the odds when, when I'm coaching uh, most teams shoot anywhere from 23 to 29% from the field, from the three ball. And if you're shooting 45 threes a game, the odds is in my favor that I'm going to get the rebound and go the other way. I, uh, my team, we shoot about 20, anywhere from 20 to 26, 27 threes a game. But we're going to make sure we kill you with the, with the two ball. And we add up. We, you know, uh, uh, when we play, when we're playing, we, I, I have a thing called um, three stops, two baskets. And we try to see how many times we can get three stops and two baskets um, in uh, in a quarter. And then we, you know, we can go half and a half, and then game. So we try to get at least five to six of those a game. If you do, if you do the math, if you do three stops and two uh, uh, two baskets every game. I mean, every every time you do it, you do it four times. You're going to be up uh, 12 to 14 points again at the end of the game. Yeah, and regardless if you're taking a 12 foot jumper or a three ball, you got to be bumping uglies and eating some glass and getting the ball back. Uh, Without a doubt. Yeah, tell us about the night in 1986 when Doc Rivers gets ejected and you became one of the first players to ever foul back into a game. <laughs> well, <laughs> Kevin Willis had got ejected. Uh, and we were we were short, we were short short we were short uh, on on players, and I was the last player to fall out of the game. And the league rules states you cannot play with four guys on the floor, so that last guy who fouls out has to go back in the game and play the game. But when he goes in the game, if he fouls, it's a technical free throw and the ball on the side. So you, you can imagine everyone, wherever I was, whoever I was guarding, they were trying to throw the ball to him and jump into me. I'm running from everybody on the floor. It's like everybody's chasing me like I have the ball. <laughs> yeah, because it's what they call a non-unsportsmanlike conduct technical foul, which comes with all the implications you just riddled off. <laughs> it was it was a crazy it was a crazy last uh, few minutes of the game. I can tell you that much. I'm like I'm trying to. Make sure I'm out of the way of every every time the ball comes my way. I'm trying to go another way. Just go, just go lay, just go lay the basketball in. <laughs> That's a terrific story. <laughs> uh, tell us about your time with the Harlem Globetrotters. Well, the Globetrotters is, it was interesting because you know you 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 play every night. That's basically every night you're playing, and people don't realize it's it's three well it's four different Harlem Globetrotter teams. It's East Coast, West Coast, uh, and, uh, European, and a Asian uh, teams. So you're playing every day. You may have one day out of uh, three weeks off. So, but you're playing every night, every night, every night. You're in a different city every night. 
uh, you know, after a while, I start feeling like Groundhog Day. Every time I feel like Bill Murray, every time I wake up, it's going to be the same thing. No matter what I do, I'm going back right back to where I started. It, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was fun, but yet it was um, kind of I couldn't wait to get off that Ferris wheel. I can only imagine because it's entertainment plus basketball in the most curious delivery of theatre. So my Globetrotter era is more of the Curly Neals and Meadowlark Lemon oh, and yeah. Gator Rivers, those kind of guys. You know, we could see the skill. And I, I long wondered why some of those guys with the skills they had on full display, whether it be with ball handling and otherwise, didn't get a game of pro, not in the theatre circuit, but in the NBA circuit. Well, you know, a lot of guys are good at what they do, but they weren't good at putting the ball in the hole. Yeah, fair enough. So and that's that's what that whole when you when you boil all that when it all boils down to it, you got to put the ball in the hole. You can be the best ball handler, but if you can't shoot the ball, put the ball in the hole. It doesn't matter. When's the next game with the Rogues? Before I let you go, Coach. The next game with the Rogues is um, Friday night, and I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Last night was was a thriller. If you wasn't there, like I tell you, I mean it is phenomenal basketball. I mean it was up and down. They were up, we were up. They we go down, they go up. We get a good stop. They get a good stop. And, and it came down to the last second. And we end up pulling it off uh, uh, a one-point victory over the road. But it, it's a thrill. It's a thrill. I'm, I'm telling you, you need to come and watch some of this basketball. This basketball is phenomenal. It's great. It's probably some of the best basketball you'll see uh, in a long time. Um, the team, they, they have a great team. I mean, they have a, a point guard that – played with us uh, two games and we released him. And now he's you guys' star player, uh, 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 Marnie Chaney. Mm-hmm. Chaney. Uh, and then also you just picked up another point guard to play with us, uh, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, Givens. He played with us. Uh, he came to Canada and played with us in Canada. So, I mean, you know, we, we, it's like I said, this team is tough. You know, you got um, – uh, Marquise Collins, he's a tough post player. I mean, he plays, plays, he gives us fits. But more important, I, I like this kid named um, Archie, number ten. He shoots the leg off the ball. I mean, absolutely. We have to make sure we are aware of where he is at all times on the floor. But I, all I can tell you is, Tony has put together a great product for you guys. Tony, Tony Ken, uh, Kenny, he's put together a great product for you guys. All I can tell you is, please. Come out and support this team because this team is worth supporting, and this team it will make you proud uh, to to have their name on on uh, their jerseys. You know, uh, it's they. I, I got a feeling we're gonna probably meet up in the playoffs again, and I'm just trying to. I'm not trying to give too much away, but I know they they, they scared the dead dickens out of us. So. This is a good. This is a good team. It's great to have you on the show. And we know these TBL guys; they're giving it their all for the next stage of their basketball career professionally. So there's good ball to be had at the Mary Brown Center. So we're talking to Cliff Levingstone. He's the coach, the head coach of the Kokomo Bobcats, two-time NBA champion, won a championship in Italy. His number 54 is hanging in the rafters of Wichita State. Good to have you on the show, Cliff. Wow, man, you 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 you, you didn't did some research on me. I, I'm just trying to be a low kid. Low-key and incognito, but uh, you didn't put me out on a blast. Everybody knows who I am now. Everybody knows who you are, Cliff. Great to have you on the program. Good luck. All right, fellas. Y'all take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's Cliff Levingstone. How about that? First-round pick in the NBA. You never know what you're going to get on the old open line. When we take a break, we're talking PSAC, healthcare, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Hello. How are you, Patty? I'm doing okay this morning. Thank you. How about you? I'm good. Not too bad at all. I just want to get this off my chest. Now, I have been in the last eight months to three different hospitals. All Perlican, Carbonair, and St. John's. Okay. Now, I have seen with my own two eyes, as they say, the nurses, the doctors, the nurses' aides, the receptionists, they are totally ran off their feet. They are so confused, they don't know if they're coming or going. Now, I'd just like to ask one question. Tom Osborne and Premier Fury, they get on the TV and they say everything is fine. Well, it's time they come out and told the people the truth because, like, people do not deserve to be lied to like this. I mean, I know it is difficult, but, like, People are getting upset with all the receptionists, nurses, nurses, aides, and doctors. It's got nothing to do with them. They are totally getting run down and stressed out. It's a wonder they're not off on leave. A lot of them are. The government's got to pay. There's a lot of uh, healthcare professionals, nurses in particular, who are on leave, and it's been it's proven to be a little bit dangerous and unsafe in some of those working conditions too. So, but. I don't think I hear the Premier or whether it be Minister Haggie, formerly uh, the Minister of Health Community Services, or now currently Tom Osborne, saying everything's fine, because quite oh. clearly it's not. Oh, yeah, I hear it on the news. Oh, no, there's no problem here. Well, there is a big problem, and, and like, it's pretty sad, because if we lose any more doctors or whatever, nurses, receptionists, like, AIDS, we are totally lost down here. And I can't believe what I've seen just the other day. I felt sorry for them. I really, really did. I think they should go a day at a time and sit in them hospitals and see what they go through. One day I went to one hospital, 17, I'm waiting. The other day I went to another hospital, 70, one doctor sitting there with my eyes. Yesterday there was no sitting room at the health science. Like, there's something wrong with the whole, whole system. Like, and I think they should re-look over the work and find out what is the problem. Well, I think the problems are varied. I, I don't think there's one or two or even three areas we could point to and say, well, these are problems. If we fix these, then we'll be, uh, home, we'll be home free because I think it's much more complicated than that. But there's no question. The system's not working anywhere like it's intended to work. There has been a human resources uh, change in healthcare in Canada for decades, and things have changed dramatically at the same time. So, you know, whether people like to use the word reimagine or to rejig or to refocus healthcare, Something has to give because we have, you know, some of these things have always been sort of strange to me. There's more doctors and nurses than ever before, yet we're all seeing all these shortage conversations and surgical backlogs and wait times and emergency rooms so congested and what have you. So obviously the system, the way it's currently structured, just simply does not work anymore. And I do appreciate what you're saying, Patty, because like I felt so sorry for them people. I was willing to cancel my appointment and give it to somebody else. 
Well, that that is sad, right? It is sad if it comes to feeling like that as a patient. And how are you doing, Mary? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, thank you, darling. But like as I said, it's uh, something's got to give, or we're going to be losing a whole lot more doctors. Well, I think we've seen, you know, even in the rank of nurses, nurses have chosen whether to stay on the casual list versus permanent full-time or to move off and work for a private agency, making more money, working less, less stress, more work-life balance. So we've got to find out how they're doing it on the other side so we can try to mimic it in the public system because we need the public system to be super strong, not splintered and not relying more and more day after day or year over year on the private system because that can just create another problem down the line. I know one thing too, Patty. I was up to Carbonier, up to um, Ontario, to a funeral. And the system there is perfect. Like I had to end up going to the hospital there. It is perfect. And I don't know. Maybe they can take lessons from the system up there. I don't know. But totally, totally unreal. That it is, Mary. I'm glad you're doing well and uh, pointing out the fact that the healthcare pros, they're doing their level best, but when you see them in action, it's a wonder they can keep their head above water day after day. I think I'd be the type to just put it all down and say, see ya. <laughs> I well, really would. Well, hopefully they don't, Mary, but I appreciate you making time for the show. Would you like to say anything and else? And I appreciate what you're saying too, Patty. You take good care of yourself. You too. Alrighty. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, let's go to line number one and say good morning to the new Democrat representing the folks of the Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Yes, thank you for having me on. So, representing your district and Labrador as a whole, a very, I don't know how to characterize it, an emotional to and fro with the government yesterday regarding what you're seeing uh, on so, insofar as suicide rates in Labrador. And when we talk about Inuit or Inu, Inu First Nation communities, it's up to 20 times higher. What are we seeing on the ground where you're from? Well, Patty, the the reason why I spoke, I spoke earlier in the morning, and I I think that's uh, what sort of led to the afternoon exchange was um, I was speaking on the budget, and it was my first time speaking on for for this year, this budget, you know, and I was kind of... I was kind of at my wit's end on, on, on speaking because, you know, going into the fourth year, I, I, I've been very discouraged, um, you know, in my district, you know, people recognize uh, the Inu and the Inuit communities, and uh, there's a lot of awareness now about intergenerational trauma and the harms done in my district with the forced resettlement of, of, of communities and the the impact that's had and also on the harms done by residential schools and there's an increased knowledge but you know government after government there there hasn't been anything done to really you know address the social and economic inequities and you know this the, the, and so i was i was i was i was i was i was struggling i you know i was really struggling and so I I I thought, why is this so important for me to keep bringing up over and over again? And that's why that's why in my budget speech I talked about the suicide rates. And the numbers are staggering. The numbers are staggering. And you know, the the the, the study that I quoted is a recent study. It's published in 2021. Uh, and it's a it's a you know, but there's more studies. You know, there's been study after study and. Every study 
on suicide for the Indigenous people, especially for the northern regions. They identify these social inequities and they talk about economic marginalization. So for me, is how do I talk about that so people understand and identify like how serious it is? So that's why I talked about the suicide rates. And the study after study shows, it talks about this. And, you know, and, and what, what is, you know, inequity? What's, what's social mar- economic marginalization? And they all go back to the same thing. It's talking about access to housing, education, health care. And, and for me, that's the things that I've been trying to raise, you know, year after year. When you hear me talking, I talk about the fact that we're struggling with the high cost of, of food. We're, we're struggling with, like, um, poor housing, access to health care. Patty... When somebody in my district, in my community, tries to travel for medical, there's many things they have to consider. Will they be able to actually physically get out to the medical appointment? Because a lot of times there's not room on the plane for them to get on. They're bumped off. You know, and I talk about, um, you know, uh, people struggling to get on the plane, to get out, to get to their medical appointment. Sometimes it's treatment. Sometimes it's cancer treatment. Sometimes it's diagnosed. Sometimes it has to do with diabetes or, uh, you know, um, really serious life-impacting treatment that they have to access. They may not be able to get out. And then when they're trying to come home to their families and their responsibilities, to their houses, uh, to their jobs, a lot of times they can't access that access to health care, access to education. You know, there's there's things that happened in the last two years that really, really makes me question whether or not we can actually have access, fair access to education that's going to impact our future leaders. And, you know, you mentioned inequity. So when, when we talk about equality or equity, they're similar, but they're not the same. And the one illustration that I think helps people understand what the difference might be is, and this has nothing to do with your situation, but just to paint a picture. So I've got a six-footer, a five-footer, and a four-footer, all trying to look over the fence at the ball game. I give them all a two-foot box. Now the six-footer can see, but the five-footer might be able to just peer over, but the four-footer is still no closer to looking over the fence. So that's inequity. We gave them an equal opportunity, but that doesn't mean that they all had the same outcome. Inside the concerns you're bringing forward, you know, I wonder how and why, if the focus area is, for instance, on the social determinants of health, which will be a province-wide matter, then some of the issues that you're talking about it has an overlap, whether it be with uh, the education system, the healthcare system, possibly the justice system. So if you had to start somewhere, because everything has to have a starting point, where would you put your focus area? Where would you put your money if you were holding the government's purse strings? Well, what I would do is, to be quite honest, is we have to stop the intergenerational trauma. It's not about owning up to the harms done by colonialization, you know. It's not about owning up to the harms done to many generations to residential schools. Right now, the government has to start bridging the gaps and 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 that and that's what I'm getting at. And I and like for people out there who don't have anything to put it in context, you know, the the, the study that I quoted the suicide rates are higher in Labrador than the island. We, we all know that. But in my district, for the Inuit and Inuit communities, they're 20 times higher, 20, 20 times higher than on the island. 
right? 20 times. And for women in Nunatsivut, compared to women on the island, the suicide rate is 31.5 times higher. And to me, that's crushing. So, there's, like, if this was going on in any other region of the province, it would be considered a crisis, and action would be taken. Oh, how can we solve this? And to me, if you look at the social inequity, we got to actually make sure that people have access to be able to afford to heat their house. Right now, they're paying 19 cents a kilowatt hour over the life block the, for stove oil. Right, for uh, it's it's basically five hundred dollars a drum, and it takes four four plus drums to fill your tank. Like you know, in Newfoundland and Labrador, people understand that an oil tank outside the nine hundred, almost a thousand liter. Right. Well, in actual fact, you're looking at two thousand dollars because it'll take four drums. Right. It'll take four four drums to, to, to fill up that tank. Right. So. If you're on if you're on an old age pension, you you can't afford that. Not only can you not afford to heat your house, you have no money to pay for food, for you know, for for any any for anything in in terms of quality of life. So that's impacting our elders, you know. And we do have problems with our youth, our our adults, and and our seniors, in terms of mental and, and social health. And this government, what I'm trying to do is trying to hold the government accountable so that they'll start to change things. And the difference between equality and equity is, you know, when you you look at who's been harmed by residential schools, all my communities have been, who's been harmed by this forced relocation. It's not like resettlement back in the day with the island, you know, the island's outports of Newfoundland. Basically, the Inuit were hauled into the church and told by the government that they're going to have to move. And they were, they, a lot of times they didn't even get to choose where they were moving. And they went into communities where there was no room for them. There was lack of housing and there was no fishing places because all the fishing birds were taken. And they didn't get any money. There was nothing about an organized resettlement. It wasn't resettlement. It was forced relocation. And it created it created so 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 much harm, you know. And a lot of my member statements, like p- if people are watching the member statements, most of my member statements have been toward to, to people toward to people recognizing um, people uh, who were forced to resettle, to, forced to relocate, and uh, you know, um, and uh, and basically they were able to overcome a lot of the harms and try to help others as well, because a lot of people didn't do very well. But at the end of the day, if this government is going to address the really outrageous, the stagger and suicide rates in my district, they have to look at the price of food. And they took off that freight boat, and they put a boat on coming out of Goose Bay, and they did, and they told me it was because the Trans-Labrador Highway was nearing completion. But we have no road access. Our patients can't get to their appointments, and that's impacting their quality of, not only their quality of life and their their overall health, it's actually contributing to a lot of them dying, you know? Leela, what's government's role in addressing intergenerational trauma, residential schools involvement or otherwise? Because it's been through the courts, apologies, cash settlements, uh, the the Inu in care uh, investigations just concluded, well, I guess the the uh, the meetings that just took place in Atwashish. So, you know, 
what does it actually mean? And this is a question coming from a place of ignorance. I don't know the answer. I don't know what should be done here. Because some of the things that happened in the past that we've tried to offer redress to or governments have tried to offer redress to. So what further action needs to take place beyond what we've already seen? And I think people would like to know because I don't know. I try to be as informed as possible, but I've always come up at, as a, at a loss here to try to see what the next steps really mean. Because, you know, people can say, well, time heals all wounds. And how can I answer for uh, actions of my, uh, for generations past? So where do we go from here? What does it mean? But, Patty, I'm having the same conversation I had when I first got elected, the year one, year two. And, you know, just using your words, offer and redress, right? Offer and redress. But it, it can't be just words. It can't be nice words being said because at the end of the day, we have to do something about our, our people who are struggling in the, in the communities. And, you know, like Canada, and I'll just read off um, of something from the National Inuit Suicide Prevention Strategy. Canada embraced and vowed to implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commissioners of Canada, the 94 calls to action as a step towards reconciling the country's role in shaping many of the social inequities that face Inuit and First Nations. Now, they vote to implement the 94 calls to action. When you look at the 94 calls to action for truth and reconciliation, it talks about the poor housing. The federal housing advocate came to my district, went into the communities in my district, into Nane, and do you know what she said? She was so mortified at the conditions people were living in. She, being interviewed, she said she has nightmares now. She has nightmares. That's not my words. You can go in and look online and, and look at the interviews she did. She spoke those words. She has nightmares. She used the word abominable, abominable for, for housing conditions and, and, and what's happening in terms of housing. Right? There's actually Newfoundland Labrador houses in my district. There's not a whole lot, but 25 of them. 25 percent of Newfoundland Labrador housing in my district stands vacant only because they haven't been repaired. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them weren't made to repairs. That's about inequity. That's about a failure to actually help. But, well, oh, let's, and I'm, I'm sorry, Patty, but I'm getting angry. You can hear it in my voice. But, oh, they'll bring in beautiful statues and put them in the, in the, in the um, Confederation building. Two years ago, I think it was two years ago when I was speaking on the budget, I said, beautiful statues not going to help the people in my district because they're not going to be able to afford to travel, so they're never, ever going to get to see them. Talking about murals, like, you know, and, and having great discussions about statues and, uh, you know, about the coat of arms. Yeah. You know, that, like, like when, peop- when people are struggling with real intergenerational trauma where their parents and their grandparents have been harmed where and actually impact them growing up as children because, you know, access to housing and safety, access to a warm house, access to, to, to have food so you're not hungry. Let's just forget about nutritional food. Any kind of food, so you're not hungry. The, this provincial government is not dealing with that, and that's why I started. That's why I said the speech, and that's why I was so upset. It's a failure. We can't accept nice words. We can't eat nice words. And you know what? Something. If people are hurt by what I said, well, listen. When you're elected to the House of Assembly, and you're actually in a position as a MHA, you have a responsibility to try and help. And this government is not helping my people. They're, they're appearing to. They're saying nice words, 
and that's what really really infuriates my people is they're just empty words and the, uh, the, the public has to know the difference we got to tell them that's why that's why I'm still here I appreciate the time this morning Leela I have to get off to the news but thank you for this okay thank you take bye care bye bye that's Leela Evans NDP member for Torngat Mountains let's take a break don't go away Welcome back to the program. We went a little bit long through that final break, so appreciate the patience of Victor in the queue who wants to talk about school lunch, which is an important conversation. And there's long been a call nationally for the federal government to get involved in funding a school lunch program. We're the only G7 country that doesn't have one. So people will say, well, where does the spending end? Just look at the other side for the additional spending that governments provincially and federally have to take on when we have uh, people, children in this case, who are hungry and what that means. So Vic will bring that up and then we'll have a chat uh, about PSAC and then plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. You're listening to the audience. You have a great show there this morning. Thank you. Thank you. I was just, uh, yes, I did mention, I think last week, the uh, school lunch program. No, I've been uh, happy to report that since that I've written, I've uh, read in the paper on April the 19th that Animal Tom Osmond has, uh, in the, the, I said, indicated in the provincial budget that they allocated 250000 toward the school program. So that's wonderful. So I'd like to uh, send a bouquet to uh, Mr. Osborne uh, for his generous uh, support. The other question, of course, uh, we haven't heard from the federal, so I'm asking Kim McDonald, who is the, my member in my district, uh, to uh, intercede uh, and see if the federal government can bring in a program uh, nationally for the children's food program. The other point is the other two kind of points I'd like to make now before I, I, I discontinue is um, the fishery, of course. Now, I know I see... Premier uh, Fury on, uh, I think, on the news the other evening, I think they were questioning him and to, as to intercede in, in, in the fishery dispute or whatever they're doing there. And I think he indicated uh, he really, well, I think he sort of alluded that uh, nothing he could do because it was a market problem. Now, uh, I'm aware, I'm not up on what's going on there, but uh, the problem, actually, we have a problem. So I would ask the Premier to um, uh, actually uh, uh, get involved with the federal government. Uh, to We need a financial assistance for the fishermen. So my, my request is for, to the fishermen and, of course, the Premier and the federal government not to let the fishermen stop fishing because uh, the plants, our, our processing plants, need, need that raw material right now. And if we don't, look, look at the effect that's going to have on our economy. Sure, but what are you suggesting that the Premier do, I'm sorry? Pardon me? What are you suggesting the Premier needs to do here? Uh, he needs to he needs to communicate with the with the federal government to uh, we need the federal government has to uh, because of the prices in uh, and uh, what the two twenty a pound. Mm-hmm. 
the crab? Uh, well, obviously, then the fisherman needs some financial assistance to continue fishing. Uh, to get this raw product for for our processing plants. Uh, in the meantime, uh, there's, there's markets. I don't know nothing about markets, but obviously, uh, this is a very serious uh, serious uh, problem we have here. And of course, I think uh, when I I mentioned before, I think you managed uh, you ma- mentioned uh, um, uh, what's it uh, management uh, uh, co I was it co co management. Uh? With federal and provincial joint management. Well, there was joint management. The reason why you know, I'm picking on the federal government, uh, the resource is owned by the federal government. The fishery, we, on the terms of confederation, we gave our fishery to the federal government. Okay, we have a problem here now. The fishermen's not going to fish, obviously, the crab, and our processors need this this uh, raw material. So it was a very serious situation. So we have to get this cleared up, you know. And the other, the other problem too, that the federal government's involved with is, is the PSAC strike. They're offering nine percent uh, for three years. Nine percent is uh, works with the three percent uh, uh, salary increase per year, and really that's not even uh, going close to the cost of living. You know, so we that's problems we have here and now that has to be cleared up immediately. Otherwise, we're going to have a, this is going to be a disastrous effect on our, our economy here in Newfoundland. Sure, you know, I, I, I don't know what governments do here. If it's about changing the rules for shipping out crab or outside buyers or those types of things, but I think we'd be asking for serious trouble if we get levels of government directly involved with setting the price. But, oh, no, I'm not talking about setting the price. I'm just talking right now. They need some fin- The fishermen need financial assistance in order to get back in the boat because what they're saying, they can't uh, obviously uh, do the fishery on, on t- uh, 220 a pound per crab. Well, that is essentially subsidizing the price per pound. I, I know. So someone has to do, yes, uh, well, whatever. But so, well, someone has to do something. Are we going to let our, our processing plants now uh, go idle and all those people who have no income join, join this year, the rest of the year? I think the bigger issue would be on the harvester side because the the plants, they can import product from elsewhere. So they'll be able to do some work, certainly less than they would if the uh, Newfoundland Labrador fishery was active. But, yeah. Uh, now, joint, you mentioned joint management. Now, I, I think that was something that came in recently, joint management. I, I guess I, I have to get to educate myself on the joint management, just what it means for Newfoundland joint management, because uh, I, I, I will actually make some, uh, I guess, um, endeavor to get some information on that. But uh, I, I want to see, too, how, what joint management is helping Newfoundland, because it seems like, again, uh, in all the respect, to the federal government, I begin to think that Newfoundlanders always get the end of the short end of the stick. Now, we closed down the fishery in 92, wasn't it? The, the cod fishery. fishery. Yeah. Uh, because the federal government uh, made, I understand from my readings, they erred in the scientific uh, in the scientific research in how much uh, cod was really in the, in the, in the, in the mass, uh, in the, how many cod we really had. I think they, they, someone actually admitted that later. Later on, the other thing I see now, I see there's. I think they're questioning now. Uh, was it a 2L or 3L? The 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 DFO hasn't done research in that area for three years. 
That's a, uh, that on what species? That was in the paper the other day. Now, I think I know okay. that since that, I think they've changed. I think they brought that up in, the, in the, they went in negotiation, the uh, negotiating the uh, the quotas, and I think okay. because of that, the, um, uh, they've increased the quotas, and I'm aware of that. But uh, you know, that's a bit. Uh, so, how, you know, what's going on? Three years for doing research in that area. Well, there's been a lack of science done on a variety of species uh, over the years. Someone should be bringing up more. We need to be more aggressive here in Newfoundland. We're not aggressive enough. Come on, let's get get on the pot. You know what I mean? Get off, get off to do something because we are contributing to Canada, and we always have. And they're getting a, lo- a lot of uh, resources from Newfoundland, so we we need our share. Okay. Let's, let's you know, let's get on the ball here. Appreciate the time, Vic. Thanks for the Thank call. Thank you very much. Take bye care. Now. All right, bye bye. Uh, will I take round here now, David? No? Uh, okay, look, the government involvement here, look, both sides want what they want, right? I mean, this is not rocket science. The harvesters would like to get as much per pound as possible. Why wouldn't they? The processor would like to pay as little as possible. Why wouldn't they? I mean, that's just how it works. So the ultimate fix here has got to be with settling and figuring out the whole way we set the price, you know? And what the eventual outcome will be of the tie-up, I don't know. Will there be any government intervention here? Well, you know, for sometimes there's been issues like when there was sea ice that was problematic and some supports would come in and or they would extend seasons and what have you. I totally get all that. But how government intervenes here with on the financial side when we're talking about market implications, I just don't know. I do think it is a it would be a terrible outcome if there was direct government intervention in setting prices. I mean, just think about the political tool that that would become as opposed to a policy tool. So how we set a price versus the current structure of the price setting panel, I don't know, but they said the quiet part out loud. They don't even think 220 was the right price. Why? Because we have a setup where you get one price offered by the FAW, one price offered by the ASAP, and they pick one or the other. That doesn't necessarily sound like the best way to reflect markets' capacity to bear one price or another. Let's take a break, final break of the morning. When we come back, Rhonda wants to talk about dental care. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Rhonda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you so very much for taking my call. It's my pleasure. Uh, So uh, I totally sympathize with the senior lady that is suffering from dental pain. I was in her state uh, probably May 24 week, and um, so after May 24 week, and I think I sent you a little blurb via Twitter. I hope I sent it, but uh, uh, I had two appointments May 24 weekend, and I had two teeth that were infected, broken, and uh, an appointment that was to be scheduled to see the oral surgery place, the only place that does this surgery, away from the hospital, to my knowledge. So uh, that appointment came, the, the preliminary appointment came in September, and I had my teeth removed in December past, December 20th. So after I got the diagnosis of the two infected teeth, uh, up until uh, September, I was prescribed four lots of antibiotics. Uh Every, I continued to get sick, but I, I continued to push myself. I knew I probably shouldn't have. I lost weight, and I just I kept pushing myself until I had to stop. I lost weight. Uh, I got really yucky continuing up to the appointment. Now, when I had the appointment December 20th, and I had the teeth removed, and I was like, yes, now I can get better. 
oh, I didn't get better. I've, I got incredibly worse. I, I really thought there were times that I think I'm lucky to be alive, um, honest to God. I had, um, I ended up having uh, an infection in my ears, my sinus cavity, uh, nasal, chest, everywhere, which I still have to spend. Like, I got up 5 o'clock this morning. I've been over a kettle ever since, steaming my sinuses. I have probably other cavities there, and I have a steady, I'm just going to call it congestion, but it's the yuck that goes along with infections from your nasal cavity, so everybody knows how gross that is. Now, I've got one that steady flows. It's like a clear saliva. It is so thick that it cuts, it constricts my airway. This has been occurring since midsummer before my mom passed. Uh, a lot of people probably thought it was anxiety. No, this was just, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I still haven't been followed up on this. But after the teeth were removed, that's when everything really started. I uh, taste, I didn't want to eat, I couldn't eat it. So I had so much congestion, I was nauseated all the time. I couldn't breathe proper, steady headache. My ears, I needed to see an ear doctor from about two weeks after Christmas, New Year's, because I couldn't hear. I still haven't gotten a physical exam for my hear, my ears, so I have no idea how good my ears are. Uh, I had a virtual appointment with somebody other than my family doctor, and I had two lots of antibiotics, which seemed to have, uh, I guess, stopped the badness and allowed me to heal somewhat. Right now, I have no idea. I'm eating a bit more. Again, I spend more days uh, spraying sea mist in my nasal cavities, ear traps, actually uh, massaging my face because it feels like I've got a layer of congestion underneath my scalp, underneath my sinuses, my nose. I, 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 I've never in my life been afraid of not waking up because my breath was going to be taken. I thought I was having a heart attack. My teeth chipped like that poor lady. I had cuts. I think my my mouth was cut on the corners from my teeth so much. It started at the corners of my mouth, proceeded back uh, to where I had wisdom teeth removed. I had white mouth or thrush from May till... Uh, I probably had a three-week break. It's back again now. Uh, I don't know how much else I have to say. I'm a diabetic type 1, okay? So this lady, to my now, I didn't, uh, or her situation, correct me if I'm incorrect. So she, up to now, cannot get any care because her diabetes is controlled. Um, is that correct, Pat? I don't know if it's as simple as that, to be honest. I'm trying to recall everything she said, but I don't think it was as fundamental or as simple as that. But before we move on, when you had the teeth removed and you thought, okay, I'm on the road to recovery, what happened for things to get worse? I mean, has anyone ever told you? Was there an infection? Oh. Was there something that I, I oh. missed in the conversation? I came home and uh, I just contributed everything happened from I knew I had infection. So I suppose just the, the congestion releasing. And uh, so my partner was at me. Scott was like, you got to get this check. You're hearing because... My partner, my fiancé, has a son who is deaf. He went to the school for the deaf. 
So, of course, that was the big thing with my hearing, because like I say, I lost my hearing, my voice went. And his, my mother-in-law had to be called me. She said, Rhonda, you go get this checked out immediately. She know of a person from a family history that had a bad tooth. And apparently, I guess it kind of went really bad and some kind of brain, I don't know, the proper clinical description, fluid on the brain, and the outcome was death or close to it. Again, my head was so unclear when she told me the results on that shore. So when she told me how bad it could get, I'm like, oh, darn. I wasn't even thinking clear enough to realize that, so I made a virtual appointment. Uh, or uh, actually my partner went and to my family doctor, told him the situation. Then he prescribed antibiotics. It still didn't work, and I had a virtual appointment, I believe, Black Marsh Road, gentlemen, I'm not sure. Fantastic, prescribed me more antibiotics, and that started working, and it's still working, and I'm still getting rid of congestion. But I'm exhausted when I finally have little congestion and I never ever am totally free it's a battle just to maintain clearing my head and my chest this lady needs immediate attention and she needs uh, if she has cavities they have to be taken care of as a type 1 diabetic your situation ain't going to get better the longer it is my blood sugar was pretty regulated when I started I ended up going to emerge twice with blood sugars that were 50. That's coma death material situation. Well, I hope not only that you or anyone else out there with the dental concerns gets what they need because very quickly it can go horribly wrong for individuals suffering with dental pain or any other issue with your teeth. Uh, I appreciate making time for the show this morning. Rhonda, I hope you're doing okay. I'm doing fabulous, Patty, and thank you so much, and God bless you all, and I hope your listeners take care of themselves. You too, Rhonda. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. uh, So, varied program here this morning, as usual. And before we go, just want to uh, end with a very positive story here this morning, and this regarding 15 exceptional high school students have been the recipients of the 2023 Research-Inspired Student Enrichment Awards. So, as a result, one student is actually going to attend the Research Science Institute at MIT, four are going to the Boston Leadership Institute, ten will participate in the Da Vinci Engineering Enrichment Program at the University of Toronto. So, the government has set aside some $200,000 for tuition, accommodations, and travel expenses. And the 15 recipients are, let's give them the shout-outs by name. Lucas Brooks, who attends Indian River High in Springdale. Allison Chard attends Crescent Collegiate in Blaketown. Dipian Dar attends Gonzaga High School here in the city of St. John's. Jenna Hamilton goes to Exploits Valley High in Grand Falls, Windsor. Allison Hutchins attends Holy Heart of Mary here in town. Gargi Kashwal attends Mealy Mountain Collegiate in Happy Valley, Goose Bay. Corey Matthews is a student at Queen Elizabeth Regional High School in Conception Bay South. JC Matthews goes to Templeton Academy in Meadows. And Andrew Moyles attends Holy Trinity in Tor Bay and keep going. Uh, Robert McCarthy goes to Crescent Collegiate in Blaketown. Fiona Park is a student at Holy Trinity High School in Tor Bay. Megan Saha goes to Gonzaga here in town. Melissa Smith goes to Queen Elizabeth Regional High School, of course, in CBS. 
Peter Trin, Holy Heart of Mary student, and Lakshmi Prajwala Shadela Venkata goes to Holy Heart of Mary High School. So obviously some very bright minds recognizing their performance in STEM fields. And of course, STEM science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So they must be some sharp cookies who obviously, in addition to their smarts, must put in major effort to be the recipient of the 2023 Research-Inspired Student Enrichment Awards. All right, we're just about out of time. Final check-in on the Twitter box for VOSIM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Comments on what you hear on the program. Suggestions for tomorrow's show. Always welcome. Email address is openlineupvocm.com. And one more crack for, not a crack, one more mention of the fact that, of course, a lot of you listen to the program indeed and will be cheering for the Toronto Maple Leafs tonight. As a Montreal fan, it's not like I'm a Leafs fan, but to be honest with you, I don't mind if I see the make a run this year. Why not? A Canadian team, especially legendary teams like the Leafs, doing well in the playoffs is good for the sport. All right, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.